Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. Chapter 261 Hessler Manted Engineer 222, aka Triple Juice, aka Triple D, looked up at the whirring thudding and felt a tingle of excitement. His marine, one Kalvek, was approaching wearing his prosthetic exoskeleton draped with two heavy assault power armor battle screen projectors. Terran power armor pieces welded to the frame and two heavy 25mm guns with power assist harness attached. Manted 640 waved one blade off, his other hand holding an impact wrench and his gripping hand holding a fusion torch. Brother, we ride this Talcon into battle for glory of hateful Mars, 640 said. For glory of the Wrathforges of Mercury and the eight anvils of Mars, Triple Two answered. I do not fear, for thou art with me, O Lord, in name as thy servant, the digital omni-messiah. Galvec sent across the data link that had been the only way that he could communicate for nearly a week. Roller, help! The little 80mm hellbore packing gunnery assistant squeaked, spinning his tire that had replaced his legs. Burpee, help! The gunnery assistant packing two chain guns added, shivering with excitement. Let's go, Kalvik said. He looked up at the howl of graviton engines and saw two assault strikers coming in, flashing the red and white lights of Medivac. They need time. Kalvik headed forward, ignoring the medics rushing by carrying patients and concentrated on the gate. He could see the Terrans laying on the berm, firing at the precursor machines that were assaulting the striker base. The gate was open, used for tanks to come in through and the S-curve. And Galvec knew without even wondering why he knew that the brain suckers were going to try swarm it under. The pistons and his joints hissed, the chains rattled under his armor plates that would fit the terror but were wrapped around his exoskeleton limbs. The guns on either side hummed with malevolence. His hands could do a little more than squeeze. He had no strength in them, no digital dexterity. But 640 had just used standard firing grips and locked his almost useless arms into hastily built frame. He stomped into the gate, moving through the S-curve and stepped out between the berm and the battle screen. Ahead of him were hundreds of Talcon and Terran-sized precursors, tearing heavy fire that destroyed them en masse. But the larger machines behind, some of them were crawling out craters, vomiting up hundreds of every one destroyed. Kalvik planted his feet and leveled his guns. Soft bottling, brave bottling, clever bottling, strong bottling. One and one is two, two and two is four. Marine bottling, hold the enemy at the door. Kalvik whispered to himself and opened fire. Ralvex let off the trigger, letting the barrel spin to cool as he waved the weapon back and forth and advanced with the Terran infantry. He looked up at the sky and saw that the amount of enemy trying to make platterfall had thinned out and those that were coming in were being harassed by the strikers and fast movers. The artillery was pounding down less than a score of meters from him. 
rotting the enemy away with high explosives. Some of them detecting armored vehicles below and using time delay after impact fuses to drive the heavy weight of the massive artillery shells into the vehicle before exploding. How's your heat and slush, Private Ralvex? One of the Terrans asked, his voice muting the sound of the Talcott Choir. His retinal link showed SFC Shin in the upper right. Hi, yellow sergeant, Ralvex answered. Five to five is controlling it. Good man, the Terran said. His voice was crisp, calm, businesslike. The link clinked and the display turned to all the units in his HUD. All right, men, we can hold this. Reinforcements are dropping all over the planet, so we're going to hold this. Yes, Sergeant, came back from multiple replies. Part of Ralphex wondered what was going on this time with the Terrans. First, it had been two months of ball steel, chewing wrath and rage and fury. Now, it was businesslike, cold and calculation. Ralvex, I'm marking for an atomic. The voice was a captain. You're our heavy weapons. Roger, sir, Ralvex said, wondering if combat beside the Terran was always so crazy. The marker showed up on his HUD and he cross-loaded it to Stampy. Stampy, help, rang out. Atomic, 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 flashed on the visors. Stampy shivered with glee and fired his 80mm hullbore, a new sun blossoming on the surface of Hessler and 50 kiloton directed nuclear blast vomited from the end of the barrel and smashed into the heavy precursor vehicle. Hoo-wee, came the couple of shouts of the comlink. Give it to them, sounded from a couple more. Incoming matrons, flashed on his visor. Ralvex felt his guts clenched. The last time he'd seen that hundreds of heavily armored psychopaths had appeared right in the middle of the enemy and broken the back of the Dwellersport attack. All units ceasefire appeared on his visor with the signature of a full bird colonel. Ralvex let the barrels keep spinning and tossed orders to Stampy and Tiny Tim to hold their fire. The Matron's gates opened up in front of Ralvex, which made it look like thousands of Terrans of white with gold edging armor and Imperium just stepped out of midair to appear in front of him in rows of hundreds. Glory to the first man to die, roared out the one in the infantry as the Terrans scrambled up the wall of the wreckage, waving a banner of the Imperium over his head. All units, fall back, came from the captain's voice. Ralvex began stepping slowly backwards as the humans in front of him, all clad in armor, were blackened and scorched, climbed over the wreckage and began attacking the oncoming precursor machine. Captain, can I ask you something privately? Ralvex asked as he slowly backed up. Go ahead, Private, the captain said. Who are they? That's twice I've seen them, Ralvex said. The Legion of the Damned, kid, the captain said. The cursed to fight but never taste the fruits of victory. Oh, Ralvex said, confident that he was back far enough to be carefully turned around, letting go of the grip so the barrels could slow to a stop. You didn't know, the captain said. I thought you saw them on Talcon. We didn't know who they were. They just were there, and we needed them, Ralvex said. You a believer, kid, the captain asked, moving diagonally to walk next to Ralvex. Ralvex noticed that the captain wasn't even wearing heavy armor. Just a Terran army adaptive camouflage with the standard vital strike plates on his helmet. In the word of the digital Omni-Messiah, yes, Ralvex said. You know the part that mentioned that there were those who broke their oaths. The captain's voice was low and slow. Imperium troops. 
Yes, Robex glanced at the heat and slash. Seven and twenty-two, respectively. That's them, the captain said. Clones and suds, Robex asked. No. It drifted through the snowy forest. For the first time in the thousands of years of life of shielding and masking its psionic powers, suppressing its aura, holding all of its psychic abilities deep inside of itself. It had to rely on its eyes, which watered painfully in the moonlit night, even though thick clouds covered the moon. It drifted, unwilling to walk. No, it would rather die than walk like a slave race. It knew if it could get far enough away from the howling and snarling feral intelligences that had harried it, that had destroyed the invasion, that had the audacity to actually assault its perfection with their rude limbs, it could open up a link to the others. Once a link was established, it could guide others through the dark dimension that they traveled via wormhole. It refused to flee this planet. It had been granted to the stellar system with all within it. It had chosen the stellar system carefully. An entire species of peaceful creatures who could be harvested, farmed, and forced to serve was proper. Instead, the foul primate just kept swarming, kept denying its greatness. It drifted around a crude ground vehicle, ignoring the corpses inside. It refused to admit pain. Its head ached from the gibbering, maddening screams emanating from the primate's brains. It drifted through the forest, trying to enjoy the serenity of the darkness, the cold, and the snow. It was glad that the hated stellar mass was hidden from view. It had not been properly adjusted to proper light and size. Instead, it was small, yellow, wastefully energetic. It saw the rippling shimmer of freestanding liquid dihydrogen monoxide and moved towards it. It would use the liquid to ground out the snarling, growling, screaming of the primates and center itself. Maybe then it could... It drifted to a stop. It could sense a mind fresh, undamaged by the psychic screams of the fighting. The mind's feather light trace tasted youthful full of potential and latent power. It changed direction. The sense of the unshielded mind vanished and reappearing strangely. When it rounded a bend, it understood. The rock was full of heavy elements and had a small root dwelling. Inside, it could feel the mines burning brightly and one entered the crude building. Feeling a close approximation to pleasure and anticipation, it glided towards the domicile with the lit viewing ports. Me ate another bug, Yulu said from the couch. She's fine, Dabri said, kicking back the door shut. She had cut firewood in her arms and she dropped it into the wood box next to the stove. She sighed, shrugging out of her jacket and setting it on the hook, then tugged off her boots. She could see Yulu and True sitting at the table, doing lessons from Mr. Bumiu that Mr. Daisy had given them. Ni was sitting over by the gap in the floorboards that led under the house, chewing away two bug legs sticking out of her mouth. She was drooling, a happy expression on her face, her ears straight up, her beautiful amber eyes watching Dambry. Dambry walked in, psych, and undid the gun belt. She hung up the belt and put the heavy pistol on the end of the table before sitting down. Mr. Mew Mew jumped up from her lap, purring softly. Dambry saw Nee put her hands down and start to crawl, 
chewing on the bug. Danbury sighed. Life was... The door crashed open and Danbury stood up, reaching for the pistol. Unlock! She yelled, leaning for it. Swoop! Danbury tumbled to the floor, her mind fuzzy. Elu and True fell from their chairs, stunned. Elu crying out in pain and fear. Danbury tried to move, tried to get up, but her body was nothing but numb, tingling, and a burning mass. She heard Mr. Mumu snarl. Whoop! The snarl was cut off, and Mr. Mumu fell to the floor in front of Danbury's eyes. As she watched, Mr. Mumu's body turned silver and then began to ooze into a puddle around the small skeleton-like robot. There was a silence in the cabin, except for the light pitter-pat behind the couch, between the couch and the kitchen table. She was suddenly yanked up, howled in midair. Danbury wished that she could scream. The creature was disgusting, dark purple flesh that glistened with oil or slime. The flesh looking like tentacle things that she'd seen in aquariums on field trips. It had a large pointed head, huge white eyes, and tentacles on the lower third of its face. It wore an iridescent robe that scorched in places and stained with dark patches, and it rode on a disc of swirling purple energy. It lifted up one of many fingered hands and twitched its fingers. Danbury felt her ears get pushed back, felt like something was touching her mind, caressing it. Her fur stood up as she felt like a long, wet tongue licked her brain inside her skull. The denticles parted, revealing a tightly puckered sphincter. Danbury wished again that she could scream, but she could barely breathe. Just raggedy, sporadic inhalations and exhalations, the sphincter opened wide, revealing a dark purple maw with row after row of triangular teeth in spiral that led to the back of her throat. She felt pressure on her ears, like her ears were being pulled apart. Her skin split open her ears, and she knew what it was doing. It was peeling the skin from her head. It was droning thick ropes of slime, the teeth moving inside the mouth. Danbury tried to scream again as it started to lean forward. The whole upper half of the being vanished in a spray of purple mist and scraps of tissue as Puny finally managed to get what she had been after for months. The kick of the heavy pistol slamming her down on her butt as her sister fell to the ground and took a deep, whooping breath as her little brother and sister clumsily got up and rushed towards her and her baby sister cried in pain and fear, surprised by the kick, the noise, and the landing on her butt. She glared at Danbury with her amber eyes as if that was her sister's fault. End of chapter. Chapter 262. Hesela. The clouds hung low in the sky, dark and heavy. Snowflakes falling upon the land as the heavy amount of debris in the stratosphere cooled down the planet. Lightning snarled in the clouds both from the planet's magnetosphere as well as the ambient electrical charges generated by static electricity and the constant use of high-energy weaponry. Even when an atomic blast pushed back the clouds, they rushed back in, as if to cover the scar on the planet from the sight of space. By a lake where luxury manors had been in the process of being torn down to make way for schools was a hastily built striker base. A place for attack hovercraft to refuel, rearm, repair, and rejoin the fight. Tanks were serviced and infantry fed, communications handled, 
a field hospital cared for wounded, but most of all, it was a striker base. The south side was against the lake, normally used for striker landings. It was a flurry of constant activity as armored troop transports rolled it, clattered in with treads or landed on thrusters. Where loaded with patients and took off again, Inside the striker base, the army infantry, the marines, the navy, and the aerospace troops were handed a rifle, slowly moved back at a steady retreat as the wounded and dying were loaded onto the evac vehicles. The base was filled with the roar of combat, the screams of the enraged at the dying, and the silence of the dead. It was surrounded by a thick dirt berm woven with multiple integrity fields, surrounded by heavy battle screens interlaced with psychic shielding. Point defense systems clawed incoming indirect rounds and missiles from the sky. Air defenses hammered on any air mobile precursor machines, and counter battery fire punched back at any artillery system the precursors fired at the base. The problem was. There was a lot of precursors on the south side of the striker base, opposite of the lake. The battle screens were taking a pounding. A gun emplacement took a hit and exploded. A point defense system overheated and shut down. A psychic screen exploded into a shower of purple and blue sparks. The ammo dump took a hit and vanished in an atomic fireball that destroyed the entire east side of the base almost collapsing the battle screens surrounding the fuel and ammunition dumps. The situation was getting desperate, with dozens of hundreds of more wounded to evac, not to mention the medical staff, the medical supplies, and the surgical equipment. From out of the airstwist and acting as the south gate stomped a hodgepodge of pieces of armor and attached equipment, bulky and rough-looking, unfinished and obviously function over form rather than the smoothing hand of engineering starting to apply form over function that appealed to the politicians and taxpayers. It was the size of a Terran, bulky, 30mm twin-barrel rotary guns in each arm, a 66mm rocket launcher on the right shoulder, quad-barrel rotary 40mm grenade launcher, four ammunition nanoforges on the back as well as everything the two armored green mantises could weld onto the refab prosthetic rehabilitation exoskeleton, worn by the Talcan inside. We ride this Talcan into the loving embrace of the digital omni-messiah, brother, the mantid 640 broadcast with glee. Into the liberating hands of the enraged Philip, we ride this Talcan into fire and fury. The Mantid Triple Two, aka Triple D, screeched over the comlink. Four and four is eight marine podlings hold the gate. Broadcast Calvec to his two companions over the data link that had been his only mode of communication for so long as the surgeons tried to put his destroyed spine back together. He could speak, but his speech was slurred and stuttered. 640 had run a neural splice back to the display unit and hardwired the power armor neural jack to run the exoskeleton rig and the attached gear. He stopped just inside the battle screen, staring up at the rippling field of energy that blocked the incoming firepower from the precursors. The entire battle screen was visible to the naked eye, much less the sensors that were embedded in Kalvik's eye socket at the armor. Kalvik had been blind in his left eye since Dr. Screams had managed to save him from the stroke two days after he'd been recovered. At his suggestion, 640 had removed the eye and put in a Warborg cyber eye, 
not bothering with much with the housing beyond cooling arrays and the structural necessities to keep the eye locked in place. He hadn't even bothered with the micro gears to allow him to move the eye. Screen at 31.58% and falling, 640 said. Won't last more than 83 seconds, 222 answered. Then it's up to us, Kalvik said. No help, Taki. We die here, 640 warned. Then we die, Kalvik stated back. Ride or die, both green mantids replied. Rona help, Burpee help. Kalvik could see the clankers. The remaining Terrans on the wall were putting holes in the formation, stopping what they could. But for every one destroyed, the large ones squatting in the craters or climbing out vomited out a dozen, a hundred, a thousand more attackers. Soft poddling, brave poddling, clever poddling, strong poddling. One and one is two, two and two is four. Marine poddling, hold the enemy at the door. Kalvek whispered to himself. He planted his feet and leveled his two heavy autocannons, the exoskeleton following the command his mostly numb arms couldn't respond to. Kalvek opened fire at the same time as he tagged targets for the 80mm halbor and for the twin-linked chain guns. The whole frame shuddered for a moment before 640 kicked in the inertial dampener that belonged to the belly of a striker. The exo-frame stopped shuddering as Kalvek slowly panned the guns back and forth. He began walking forward, the exaggerated overly careful movements that he first learned in power armor training when he had first learned to augment his movements with the neural linkage. Kalvik stepped through the battle screen with over-exaggerated steps, each step thudding into the baked dirt and raising up puffs of energy weapon dehydrated dust. Return fire smashed into the battle screen, flaring it brightly, but the glowing crimson Simon eye compensated for it, even as his flesh and blood eye was dazzled. 222 fired off dazzlers, ripjacks, microprisms, ferrite smoke, high-density smoke, and every other defensive munition he could cook up. The 10mm rapid-fire gun on his back spitting rounds at any missile that got too close. 640 ran the nanofortress as the two autocannons tore through the ammunition, monitoring the coolant lines that were wrapped against protocol around the barrels. Kalvek kept moving forward, remembering his training that over half of his advantages was mobility and repositioning to maximize his firepower and minimize the enemies. Roller rocking! The little gunnery assistant chirped and fired the 80mm halbor in rapid fire mode, rocking out a round per second, slamming the 250 kiloton overcharged directed nuclear explosion straight into the larger precursor vehicle's shields. Atomic! just kept flashing in Kalvik's missions. Burp! Sounded out, the little gunnery assistant cut loose, quivering with excitement due to lockouts being removed and the massive heatsink normally reserved for warborgs strapped to the rear of its body. It didn't bother letting off the fire, just breaking the entire front line of the oncoming Procurs machines with the 20mm chain gun. Burpy help! Burp! Kalvik felt the tingle the last battle screen projected from the striker base as he passed through it, felt the taste of tangy berries and his gums from the psychic shielding, and triggering the guns again, emptying the rocket pack on his shoulder in one lurching step, using the forward shoulder movement to offset the kickback. 
Heavy tanks right side, Two-two-two said, jamming his cybernetic blade off, the only one he had, into the firing mollusks of the right gun and overriding the maximum heat tolerance. Rocket launcher ammo pack reloaded, 640 said. Kalbeck turned, up a torso first, then the swing of his right leg, pivoting on his left. The tanks came in sight and he tabbed them up real quick, firing off rockets, stepping forward and feeling the missiles launcher reload and fire again. Their tanks exploded in a quick row, the 66mm missiles going hypersonic less than 5 feet from Kalbeck. The inertial dampness howled as plasma packets, strong enough to pack a significant kinetic punch, slammed into his shields, but it did its job, and Kalvak barely felt anything beyond a light tap on the shoulder. The three precursor aircraft, their thrusters sprattering, angled to rush forward faster, the domes on their tops dark. Turn the torso right, left knee up, swing leg left, plant left leg, step forward right leg. The heavy guns his hands were on, engineer tape wrapped around his nerveless fingers, shredded the aircraft, sending them spinning and tumbling even as Kalbeck kept up fire for a second on the rapidly disintegrating wreckage. Three more heavy dropships came roaring down, smoke pouring off their armor, the guns firing to provide a little support vanishing to the south. The battle screen generators were howling, overheating, overworked, but Kalvek ignored them, striding forward into the enemy's fire. More and more vehicles were orienting on him. Atomic! 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 Roller rocking! The gun fired again, pounding through the last of the shields, and Roller overrode the thermal warning, firing two more shots into the suddenly vulnerable hull of the precursor ship. The first blew a crater in the armor, revealing twisted wreckage that had been internal components. The second blew the entire back out of the ship and obliterated the squad huddled in the armored core of the ship. The ship behind shuddered as shrapnel and the remainder of the 250 kiloton directed blast hit it. Not that Kalbeck knew. He was still stomping forward, firing his guns, ignoring heat warnings, ignoring slush levels. 640 kicked the creation engine's top, making it rotate, and it dumped out its contents, looking like a steaming watery milk being poured from a pot. 640 pulled it back up and dropped a sober-looking ball into the nanoforge. The heat woke the nanites up and the nanoforge took less than a second to rapid integrate with the new nanites. 640 tossed a nanite buster grenade on the shimmering spot where he dumped the nanites and turned his attention to the secondary thermal cores. With a heave, 222 got the round unjammed from the cannon, making Burpy beep happily. The manta jumped from the gunnery system, flattering his vestigial wings to get more airtime, and landed on Kalvik's right handgun, pulling out a can of liquid nitrogen and spraying the war steel barrels. One of the tanks got shot, and a 75 kiloton blast went off against Kalvik's battle screen, overloading it, making him lean into the blast that caused his heat to spike up. The intertial dampener howled as the shockwave hit him. The secondary battle screens flared as the fireball slapped him, but he kept wading into the fireball regardless. Kalvek stomped out of the fireball, still firing. Burpee spotted something shooting straight up from one of the ships and beeped with glee. Its twin linkage guns shredded it in midair in less than a second. His radio clinked and he twitched an ear and left in a helmet two months ago. 
His flesh and blood eye was out, the retinol link gone with it, blood with virtuous humor leaking out of the socket down his cheek. Still, the red eye taken from the dead warbog glowed. A heavy maser, usually used in space, hit him square, rocking him back slightly. He fired a pair of rockets back and the weapon emplacement exploded, gouting fire and vaporized metal. We can't support you out there, kid. A voice came in over the commo channel. Doesn't matter. Get them out. Kalbeck sent back. Strong podling. Brave podling. See the pretty square death is coming, marine podling. Brave. So don't care. There was a silence for a moment. Digital Omni Messiah be with you, brother. The Terran said and cut the link. We ride this Dalkin to the enraged Philip's loving hands. To immortality and the arms of the digital Omni Messiah. We die free. Blue square is square, yellow circle is round. Marine bottling has fun guns to pound. Muxted circled the striker base twice, his instruments sweeping the wreckage. He could see that the fighting got all the way up into the base. Why precursor landing ships were nothing but scattered and shattered wreckage. The radiation detectors howling, but a glance showed him that it was within tolerances. He sat down, strangely enough, in his usual spot, surrounded by shredded precursor machines. The neural jack disengaged with an audible click. He unbuckled, staying linked to his striker through his data link, and moved down into the back of the striker, jumping down onto the ground from the open troop bay. A Terran he'd picked up somewhere, he didn't remember where, dismounted the heavy door gun and jumped out, looking around with his burning red eyes. They all get out, the Terran asked, his voice neutral, as if he was discussing the weather. Except for a couple who stayed behind to hold the line, Muxted said. Going to sweep, see if any of them survived. We need to get Striker Base Boop back online as soon as possible. The clankers in orbit might be finished, but there's still plenty of ground fighting to do. Two more Strikers landed, crews climbing out. I'll accompany you, the Terran said, unnecessarily in Muxdead's opinion. Muxdead searched the Striker Base carefully, checking inside the buildings. The evidence of heavy fighting was all there. The operating room was gutted. It looked like someone had used rockets inside, and the wreckage of the precursor machines showed why. Boss, over here, the Terran said, by the evac pod. Markstead moved around the gutted precursor tank and saw the Terran. He was standing in the opening of a berm that surrounded the evac pad and prevented debris from hitting its surroundings. The wreckage was thick on the ground, and Muxter could see where the explosives had been used to blow brakes in the mounds. He counted one, two, two and a half, maybe three with that one, four, no, still three, four, five, Terrans, six, no, still five, six, maybe seven, yeah, seven Terrans total. Most of them still held weapons in their fists. The Terran with Muxted bent down and inserted a wire into the grenade pinhole on the implosion grenade still held tight in the dead hand, disarming it. Muxted climbed to the top of the third rise of wreckage, careful where he put his feet. A happy beeping sound came out of the wreckage in front of him. He moved towards the beeping and found a half-demolished Talcon gunnery assistant drone. Its hologram projector showed a happy face icon that flashed a few times. 
The beeping slowed and stopped. The magic smoke curled up the crackling computer core Arbit housing. Muxter looked up at what was in front of it. A robotic exoskeleton that smashed pieces of Warborg and Terran combat armor, heavy weapons, a burnt-out nanoforge with a mantid engineer flattened and baked onto the surface. A computer combat assist module with half a mantid engineer hanging from a single cybernetic blade arm that was jammed into the access port. And all wrapped around a burnt and ravaged beat. It took Muxted a minute to realize what he was looking at was a Telkin. Or what was left of one. He was missing his body from the upper thighs to just below his ribcage, the bones and ribs exposed, blackened, and charred meat from multiple plasma blasts filling where his lower torso should have been. The charred meat at the bottom of his ribs had armor seed and sprayed on it, with heavy cables running off of what looked like exposed cybernetic linkage, running from the Dalkin's exposed spine to the half-missing legs. Half of his helmet was torn away to reveal bare bone, seared meat, and an empty eye socket. The visor was turned off, revealing a single Warborg eye jammed into the other socket. A solenoid in the heavy autocannon kept blinking until the Terran reached down and pulled the power lead from the side of the gun. Muxted squinted at the body, trying to get his implant to recognize who it was. It took his implant three queries to get the ID back. Private Kalvik, 2nd Talcan Marine Division. Triple Two, Manted Combat Engineering Regiment, 2nd Talcan Marine Division. 640, Manted Computer Repair Technician, 9th Sustainment Battalion, 1st Cavalry Division. He made them pay for it, the Terran said. Yeah, Muxted said, turning away from the corpses. Time to get to work. Boop isn't gonna rebuild herself. We'll get grave registration out here to collect up these poor, brave bastards. Another striker sat down, and the war went on. Birth Contact, Chapter 263 Most Senior High Executive, Permanent Most High Executive, in the command, Stogmaka'u, sat in his lavishly decorated desk, staring at a hologram that was projected above his desk. It was a simple one, one that he had glanced at now and then without really caring that much for all of his 300 years of life. A great field of stars taking up the majority of the base of the galactic spur. All Atlantic land controlled worlds. Farming worlds, manufacturing worlds, herd worlds, defensive worlds. He watched as the fast forwarded through the various parts of the Atlantic land hundred million years of history. Different races rose up usually towards the wasteland of the gulf between the arm of the spur, less frequently in the great gulf of the middle of the spur, and occasionally from one of the few planets outside of Lanikland control and supervision. Every time, the worst enemy had done was destroy the ecosystem of a planet, perhaps even glassed it, and maybe taken a few dozen systems. The great herd had never been threatened, had slowly spread out and slowly growing, carefully, Curated populations slowly expanding to different planets. Even vigorous and energetic species had been gentle and, uh, through the use of various techniques, convinced to draw back to only a few systems. Usually, the species thought it was their own idea, their own race slowly dwindling. That resulted in them slowly retreating to their home system and awaiting either recycling 
by the great collectors, all slow extinction. The map was dormant for nearly a million years. Only the fast expansion of a few races that were repressed almost before they could take more than a handful of systems that appeared as brief sparks of the map. Then came the time to test the edges of the Great Gulf, to examine whether or not there were new species to worry about, and to see if any ancient machines of death and destruction still lived. It was nothing new, something done every thousand generations. The map suddenly slowed. Abel appeared. A sparkle there. He slowed the map, looking at the icons. Terran martial law, kept appearing. System ownership in dispute, appeared in others. Stakamau knew the Lanakalan corporations had screamed that the Terrans needed to turn over the systems and pay for all the damage caused by fighting the precursors. One system in particular caught his eye, owned by the Kismet Corporation. The precursors had not only been dealt with a severe defeat, but the Terrans had convinced the Neo-Sapiens to fight next to them, had led the combined forces to victory over the precursors. There, that was the start of it all, he mused. He examined the data. A known criminal of such power and reach that he was forced to use a Terran language to describe him, Mobster La Coastal Nostral, a criminal that became a folk hero in Terran fictional historical dramatizations. Stukuma'u opened up a window and examined a report from the Executor Propaganda Ministry bemoaning the effectiveness of the Terran propaganda machine. The EPM couldn't explain how a dramatization was that based on a true events managed to get the true word out and be so beloved by those who partook of the media. One picture popped up in the window of a Lanark to land with a single burning cyber wearing a war mech control helmet that said, Nobody cared who I was before I drove the back. And even Sta'akama'u watched it as it was shared by tens of thousands of times. Sta'akama'u had carefully researched that image, that propaganda mimetic warfare image. It obliquely referred to a fictional story that had been told and told and retold for over a thousand years. The tragedy of the death pain and the Algol collapse, the most recent one was called. Stakamau watched the dramatization and nodded along. Yes, yes, very exciting. Full of action and violence, explosions, tragedy, drama, emotional content. Darth Bane was a bad guy, but also the central character. But also motives that even Stakamau could empathize with. He just wanted to make his world a better place, return control of the star systems to the people rather than the tyranny of the Jedi Council of the Children of the Flying Mammal Men. He perished, undone by his own hubris, by the infamous Warborg of Purity, after an exhilarating vehicle chase that culminated in a laser sword battle on top of a burning bridge during a thunderstorm where Darth Bane plunged into the icy Ammonia River and vanished. Sna'akama'u also paid attention to something his peers and subordinates really examined, the long part after the ending. The credits. He found that nearly 13,000 beings and 200 corporations worked on this fictional narrative. The fiction had taken six years of production, and Sna'akama'u opened the window to do quick calculations. He weighed the resources used, the manpower, the weighted it against how much profit the movie made for the studio and the corporations how much it made for the viewing corporations, how much it made in products, then sat back and nodded. It created more wealth than the value of the resources it consumed. 
Shaking his head, Sakamau went back to watching the star systems change color. Unlike many others, he had access to exactly what had happened on those worlds. The routing of the Kistamit Corporation, the fact that the executors and the military were destroyed by the precursors at every engagement. He injected a mood stabilizer and opened four windows. The first was a group of Neo-Sapiens led by Lanaklan overseers against the precursors. They broke under fire, most of them dying as they fled in panic. The second, Lanaklan against the precursors, most of the falls died from the precursors' psychic assault. The rest were routed and slaughtered. Stakamau dabbed up another mood stabilizer and looked at the third window. Your families are behind us. Join me to fight. Not one step back. I fight for your families. Can you do any less? A Terran roared out, standing up in front of the Neo-Sapiens, huddled in the protections. Two lasers and a kinetic round bounced off the Terran's body armor. Smash these metal motherfreckers into junk! The Terran bellowed, her eyes in a bright furious red whose glow completely obscured her eye sockets. According to every other video, the Neo-Sapien should have started screaming and panicking, fleeing the battlefield. Instead, the first one, then another, then, like a dam breaking, the rest joined in firing back at the precursors. They all lifted their voices, shrieking out a single word, John Corner! He watched Neo-Sapien shrug off wounds that killed him in other recordings, snarling and spitting and yelling and fighting. The fact that the helmets all had psychic protection put to rest the suggestion by Stakamau's peers that the Terrans were using psychic abilities to make the Neo-Sapiens fight. Video after video after report after witness statement all agreed a single Terran leading a thousand Neo-Sapiens could turn into battle. In the one he watched, the Terran was killed by a tank round and would have gutted the starship. A Terran staggered forward firing till she collapsed. The Neo-Sapiens went berserk. Some of them were resorting to beating on the precursor machine with debris, screaming and spitting. Examining the lexicon, Stakamau found it. Valor, bravery, sacrifice, duty. The definitions were different, but close enough to the same to be understood. They made Stakamau shake his head and take another dose. Just reading the words seemed to fill Stakamau with a burning desire to do more, to exercise the power of his office to benefit all people, not just his own, that it was his obligation rather than his privilege to have the power he possessed and wielded. Human thought is infectious, like a disease, he thought to himself. He tore himself away from watching those fascinating video clips and started the playback again. Systems kept flashing icons for being attacked by precursors. He watched the force levels of Lanarkland forces, be they corporate, executor, military, or even lawsick, dwindle rapidly. Each time the icon for the Terrans appeared, and it was the precursors who began to dwindle. In over three quarters of the systems, the amount of local military forces increased. Each time the Terrans prevailed. Four times the Lanarkland forces in the system defected to the Terrans. All four of them joined together to form the War Steel Herd and were armed by the Terrans themselves. The members of their paramilitary arm were all wanted by the executors, all with death sentences now. 
He looked at the image of the leader, a two-legged part one flank replaced with cybernetics, Toby's arms and his arm pectorals replaced by gleaming black chrome. The Lannister Land wore body armor as if he had been poured into it, and had his mouth one of those smoke sticks that he, the insectoid Trinidad, always possessed. Sixteen systems. That was how many systems the War Steel Herd protected against any who would attempt to take away the right to grace free and speak how you will. From not only the Lannic land of the system, but the Neo-Sapiens who'd all been released from debt bondage, many of them armed and trained by the Terrans. A quick video showed a grouping of twelve Lannic land facing off the greater gatherers. Their war cry of, We are the war steel hooves of liberty, shook the camera as dozens of infantrymen destroyed one of the largest great gatherer organisms. He ran a check of war steel hooves of liberty and found four million results. One animated graphic showed a Lannic clan clad in executor armor pushing his hooves on the face of a Lannic clan fowl, obviously laughing. Hooves shod in black war steel entered the frame, kicking the Lannic clan in the face hard enough that the Lannic clan flew off frame with the words liberty appearing. The two legs attached to the hooves had words on them, freedom and firepower. A quick check showed that the memetic warfare propaganda image had an 83% engagement and approval rate amongst the Lannic land who viewed it. In over 2,000 systems, just viewing the image was enough for a summary execution. That made Stakabau shake his head. That was stupid. All that would ensure was that this spread around even more. Graffiti had been sprayed as deep as the core walls of a black horseshoe with wings made of overlapping blades of each side of the crescent, with the words, We fight in your name, arcing over the horseshoe with freedom and liberty underneath. Then the annotation flashed up that the great gatherers had arrived in the Neo-Sapien systems in the Outer Rim worlds, as well as the attempted assassination of the Terran diplomat stacked on top of the arrival of the first wave in Terran Confederate space. More and more worlds began switching color. Stakamau nodded. This was to be expected. Each world would put a drain upon the Terran's resources, straining their logistics change, depleting their manpower, absorbing their war material. Projection lines were drawn for maximum depth the Terran Confederacy would be able to conquer. There had been some estimations of deep strikes, but instead the Confederacy just made a steady advance. True, deep strikes had occurred, but always upon systems completely controlled by the Executive Council or automated factory systems. Those systems had been left denuded of everything but a star. Even the old cloud had been stripped away. Stakamau opened a window and examined what a probe had found in a system completely destroyed months ago. It was only a few weeks old, the probe moving through jump space in a region mathematically proven to be inhospitable to living beings to return quickly with the data. The system was populated with planets, gas giants, solar works and three worlds in the green-yellow zone for habitation. The probe had gotten a look at the fourth planet, which sat in the middle of the green zone, doing a fast scan and an atmospheric cruise to survey the world and the life. He paused the scan results and opened up yet another window. He ran search on the data. While the search ran, he got up and trotted to the window, looking out the central Unified Council city beyond. He had a suspicion. 
The data he was searching was millions of years old. The Terrans had captured so many facilities, it was logically assumed they had managed to capture a data core possessing system surveys for the last hundred million years. Managing to break the intimidating Executor 8-bit encryption and the 8-digit password. His system beeped and he pulled himself away from staring at the skyline, trotted back behind the desk and settled down on the couch. The system had been discovered 70 million years ago, then converted to a slow extraction system, then to an infrastructure system, then to a military system. The system had been reverted to the same type of life forms of the original survey. The same planetary configuration, even though the two gas giants and the asteroid belt had been mined away. It was as if the Lanarktalan had never discovered it. He checked the datum against nearly 20 other systems. All of them returned the same results. The life forms, planetary configurations, atmospheres all matched the initial survey the Lanarktalan had performed before converting the system to little more than a military base. As if the Lanarktalan had never existed. The sight made his stomach clench as he felt vaguely ill. His office had trillions of images mined off the Terran Solnet before it had been supposedly disconnected from Galnet, although Stakamau knew that over a dozen grey nodes existed to access Terran interconnected computer systems. He ran a search for a matter of creation. There were pictures of Atlantic Land saying, You cannot create matter, entropy will take it all and a Terran laughing and spinning star systems from his hands and saying, Singers in the darkness sing, la 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 la. Our search for singers in the darkness returned almost nothing, except for a few images here and there. One had a caption. Watch some singers in the darkness finish their chorus, or inspiring, sing against the darkness. With emojis, there were two pictures, one of a nearly depleted red giant with no planets that weren't scorched and burnt. The next was an energetic yellow star, 11 planets, 13 moons, a gas giant with a ring around it, and three worlds lush with life. Part of him insisted that the two images were of different systems. He ran a stellar location check. They were both the same system according to the star positions. Could it be fake? Absolutely. But it was in the vacation pictures which showed a young bipedal Surian with a grey skin flexing an impressive amount of muscles in different locations, gazing adoringly at a large fat birds with shiny brown feathers and holding intoxicants while surrounded by friends. There would be no need for an adolescent Rykelian to put up such fake pictures to impress her friends. Stakamau knew that an analyst must consider the psychology of a subject. Unlike the huge, vast, unending amount of analysts available to the executors, he felt he knew something about the Terrans that the others did not. They did not think like the gentle species, so trying to assume motivations and desires based on beings of the Unified Civil Council was a waste of time. He opened another window and brought up a report by a field agent who had spent over a year embedded with the Terran military unit, 1st Cavalry Division who had pretended to be a mental defective with the intellect of a child. He read the report three times. Again, he unpulls the system display of the Unified Civilized Council territory and watched. The Terrans hit the outer systems that pushed inward even as they moved to the sides. New fleet identifiers popped up in system after system. 
Three months after the Great Gatherers landed on the first planets in Neo-Sapien territory, the Terrans had completely taken all the systems on the edge of the Great Herd's territory. Instead of spearing to the central core like every other race, the Terrans concentrated on the Neo-Sapien worlds, resting them from the control of the corporations and the Lanaklan councils. Then they started pushing inwards, sliding around the bottom, top and sides of Lanaklan space even farther. Six months ago, the Terrans managed to completely envelop the unified civilized council worlds, strip away all the species but the Neo-Sapiens of the core worlds and the inner systems. Three months ago, and they had taken over a quarter of the council's territory. A month ago, they had taken a third of the council's territory and all the Neo-Sapien territory outside the inner systems. Stakabu noted that most of his peers thought that now the Terrans would have to slow down, that their supply chains had been overburdened. Stakabu saw the same thing he had seen when it had dawned on him and it horrified him. The Terrans were squeezing the great herd. They could keep advancing at the same rate because the front line of the amount of planets that they were actually taking had decreased as the radius around the central herd systems decreased. They were on the edge of all of the inner systems, not just a spearhead driving towards the central herd systems or a decoy of the unified civilized council systems. They were squeezing the entire system. Now herd home had ceased sending food and materials to the inner systems. He sighed and closed his images, bringing up other images. In one, a Lanaklan military most high was speaking, his tendrils drooping, his jowls just hanging, his eyes haunted. Stakabu turned up the volume. No, 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 we didn't fight our way free. They didn't let us disengage at 20% mark. They destroyed all but 20%. They allowed us to leave and let us know it, the most high was saying. We jumped to a new system, and either they would be waiting for us to arrive, or arrived with us. Are you sure it wasn't the Terran forces that had taken that system? The off-screen voice asked. My scanner technicians know how to ID a drive system and profile. The most high snapped, his tendrils curling with anger. The exact same Terran commanders would appear on my screen and taunt me, to laugh at me, to let me know there was nowhere I could run that they could not find me. The Most High paused. They even chased us in jump space, somehow broadcasting messages urging us to run and laughing at us. The Most High said after a moment. He closed all but his front-facing eyes and shuddered. It was horrible, and I take glee in it. They did terrible things to us. Horrible things. Such as, the questioner asked. The Most High shuddered. One of their electronic warfare intelligences got aboard the ship. It was horrible. Stakamau touched the reference file and opened it. It showed that the Most High trembling from exhaustion, his crew displaying signs of long-term stress. The bridge was damaged. Many Lanaklan were injured, and the feeling of defeat and despair was strong enough that Stakamau could feel it through the image. Ask the ship's VI why we dropped out of here, the Most High ordered. The ship's VI appeared on the bridge helodeck. He made me, the VI said. It looked like it was going to weep. It made me. Who made you? Don't talk nonsense. You're the ship's... The Most High started to say. A holographic hand, much clearer and higher resolution, came out from behind the representation of the VI. The hand closing around the VI's mouth. 
A Terran made of light stepped up behind the VI's representation. I did, it said. It plunged his hand into the VI and began ripping out chunks of coat even as its jaws got larger to full of meat tearing teeth and began ripping out the hologram, which writhed and screamed like a living being in agony. The VI shattered and the bridge went dark. After a second, the holotank came back on. The Terran head was projected into the tank and it looked around. Its mouth was bloody and strings of code ran down its chin. I left you a backup of him alone. Just, um, you'll know what I did to him. What I can do to any time to him. You'll need to reload him if you want to pilot the scrap heap again. But he'll remember me and what I can do to him at any time. The Terran said, then dissolved into sparkles. The scene had been horrifying, but Stakamu had looked at enough records of conflicts against the Terrans to not be surprised. They let us escape, the Most High said, and began weeping. They let us escape! Stakamu closed the windows and opened back up the hologram of the systems. The inner systems burned brightly, the color of the unified civil council and the great herd. Stakamu wondered for how much longer. End of chapter. Chapter 264 The Great Herd Kraatama'o considered himself a talented Lanatilan. In only two centuries, he had risen to be the most high of nearly two dozen stellar systems. All of them, out of the way and far from the inner systems, true. Had basically the outer systems and outer room border, yes. On the backside of the United Council systems, true. But he was placed in charge of 21 systems and 650 billion living beings. All but 75 million were Lanark Lan by the Unified Civilized Council. He had accomplished this by being careful, conservative, and stable. He chose his subordinates carefully, with an eye towards how well they kept the status quo rather than any sweeping changes they made. He had refused most United Military Council suggestions for his military Most High, finally setting on an aging Most High who had spent the last hundred years overseeing nearly empty worlds. Kratama'o preferred ordered stability. He disliked surprises, all things outside of his predictive analysis programs. Running a high-tech society was a difficult chore, one that demanded that the lows and highs were managed to keep the tears from appearing in the fabric. The systems themselves were out of the way, down and out from the core systems. He had secretly reached out and took over the 30 star systems between his territory and the vast emptiness below the galactic arm. While he wasn't the acknowledged ruler of those systems, most of them did not even have a most high. Just a ninth or a tenth most high, and three of them had most highs only in the fact that there was a title there, and nobody was filling them. Which meant, in reality, he was in charge of 55 systems, 1.2 trillion living beings, with 12 billion neo-sapiens, including three systems that gravitational forces had flung from the arm stub and nearly 60 light-years into the darkness between the below and the galactic arms. That was 200 years ago. Once he had control of the systems, he placed subordinates carefully. His only orders were to ensure that none of the Neo-Sapiens rise high enough to challenge the supremacy of the Great Herd and try to attack. He knew that would bring an attention to the Unified Council to him. 
something he wanted to avoid, since politicians and council beings had a tendency to mess up carefully laid plans. Other than that, nobody cared what he did. He could order every Lanaclan under his authority to dye their hides orange with the grayish lime green stripes and nobody on the council would care. As an experiment, 15 years ago, he had nearly stopped sending updates to the Unified Council, just allowing his VI to put together a formulaic everything is fine letter and send it out on the second of the date that he was supposed to transmit the system status of the area. For the three years afterwards, he removed the system's names from the status report. For nearly a year after it had been reduced to three stellar systems, he had stopped sending the updates. Nobody had seemed to notice, which suited Kratama-O just fine. The Galnet node still worked fitfully, sporadically and slowly, but still worked. That was how he had seen the horrors of the Precursors had attacked. He knew there was over 2,000 light years between himself and the Precursors. They were up and in from him, but still, he had been worried. The military Most High had agreed with his concerning, but what could they do? The Precursors would easily defeat even the military forces. So Kratoma O, whitewatched as Galnet streams, laggy and constantly buffering on his personal high-speed Galnet link. Often, he would set several data streams to download and wait a day or two for it to fully download. The Galnet connection was terrible. The linkages never finished sometimes. That's why the Galnet in this area was known as CompuNet, since it was almost entirely self-contained. Then, he had seen the images of the Terrans start to appear. He still got some garbled government updates, so he knew more than the average Lanark land on the street about the Terrans. He had managed to link CompuNet to Solnet for a brief period of time and had spent his time examining it. He liked stability, so, like an ancient sailor, he kept one eye on the horizon for storms. He was sure that the Terrans were going to be turned from a sunny day to a storm. His military highmost had gruffly predicted that the Unified Council would do something stupid, I'm sure, towards the Terrans. Kratoma O had ordered a few things on Solnet sending a minion in his faster ship to liaison with the Junker had accepted the delivery, making sure that there was no hint about where the order had originated from or where it was taken to when complete. Both he and the elderly military Most High had examined the object ordered, a simple object in possession of every Terran in existence, had watched it work, had experimented with it, and had been quietly horrified about the implications of it. The military Most High had been even more alarmed and reiterated his statement. The Unified Council would ignore the possibilities of a simple device and do something stupid. It galled Kratoma O to know that the elderly being had been right. But he had chosen the military Most High for his willingness to tell the truth, not polish Kratoma O's hooves and hindquarters with his tongue. Still, at least he didn't have to put up with some executor most high frothing at the mouth for the extermination of the Terrans while dropping patties on Kratoma O's office carpet, blowing spittle everywhere and spitting well-chewed cut on the walls. There was no executor most high working for him. There was no executor council in this territory. So sad that the Lactmo fusion energy facility exploded, he mused to himself. Luckily, the city was largely deserted due to a chemical leak, so only the executor complex was destroyed. Shame about that loss of life for all those years ago. 
To his credit, he had practiced that thought so long that there was no sense of sarcasm. Even the truth beam would bring forth that line. The corporations had learned to do what Karatamao said. Due to the fluke where the system sat, it was a six-year trip from the edge of what he liked to think of his Karat system to the nearest unified council system. Jump space was weirdly twisted and warped, and in some places, a ship would actually go slower than light if they exited the region instead of traversing the shadows for three months. They would be further away from the edge of the rapids, ending up further down and out from the edge of the shadows. The corporations, consortiums, and trusts had been angry when he had cancelled the dead peonage system, but rapidly changed their minds when Kratomao started charging them retroactively for use of the planetary space. Permission to travel within the system, charge them for the value of the resources extracted, charge them for each being they hired, and even charge them for how much energy from the local stellar mass fell upon their property. There had been a few corporations who had tried massing their fleets against him. It hadn't worked. Most beings refused to fight. Others simply defected to Kratomao. The rest had been destroyed. Not just the standard 10%, all who refused to surrender were destroyed utterly. Their names, ship registries, even their system records purged. The computers didn't even contain records of the corporate rebellion for over a century ago. He was Kratomao, and he liked things nice and steady. He liked order. He liked stability. Which is why he was nervous. He knew it was going to happen eventually. There was Bandu. They were everywhere. They were rushing in too fast. They were being too aggressive. The military most high had simply stated, We're too far out for them to care. They won't come near us. But before the first time, the military most high had been wrong. Kratomao knew the elderly warrior would be wrong. Kratomao had rolled the dice, selected a system only a dozen light years from one that began screaming that they were under Terran attack, and had taken his personal ship to the system. The trip took three months, and Kratomao had to keep dropping into real space to send messages for his subordinates not to attack any random Terrans, who most would consider the second most high, stayed in constant communication with him as did the gathered beings that others would call the council. When he had arrived in system, he had ordered the system defense's forces to drop beacons around the system, broadcasting loudly, then settled down in his ship and watched, and waited. He didn't mind the solitary existence of his ship. The computers, robots, and VI were orderly, predictable, and followed patterns. Gratma-o liked that. He played with one of the objects that he had ordered off Solnet for nearly two years ago, still fascinated by the capabilities. He had learned quite a bit about the object, like computers that drove it and the programs that instructed it. It was an orderly thing, and he liked orderly. Finally, it happened, only a few hours off of what his predictive analysis programs had estimated, but close enough that Chromatomao was satisfied. They had not arrived like he had thought that they would. He had assumed, most possibly, like every other Lanark clan, that they would arrive in the resonance zone, jump drives beating energy and proclaiming their existence to all reality. They proclaimed their existence with heavy metal incoming. Instead, they uh, streaked into existence, coming in between the habitated world and the resonance zone, as well as coming in between the habitated world and the stellar mass. 
Heavy metal is here, rang out. Kratma admitted that it was a bit disheartening and demoralizing. The ship hung in space for a long moment, and Kratma knew that they were examining space with their senses. He lit up his drive, just turning it on and off a few times, then left it on and hung in space, letting his beacon squawk his location and identity. One of the ships streaked into nothingness and reappeared with the same streak in front of him, only six light seconds away. His computer received a lexicon request and he granted it, taking deep breaths. He wished for a long moment before admonishing himself that he had not insisted that real food, not nutrient-based, had been the diet of every being in the Karat system. He could use some calming drugs. Finally, he got the request for a communication. He shut down the object and turned his attention to the screen as he activated it and opened the communications channel. They're even more imposing in person, he thought to himself as he stared at the bridge of a warship obviously ready to commit mayhem. There were primates, Syrians, insectoids, and even avians on the bridge, all in the same uniform, all wearing armored vacuum suits, all moving with precise, unhurried movements. The Terran staring at him had half of her face replaced with the matte black cybernetics. Her cyber eye glowed green, but her flesh and blood eye had a cold amber glow in the depths. I am Admiral Norcrat, 38th Fleet Commanding, the Terran said, enunciating slowly and carefully. I represent the Terran Confederacy, and the Terran Confederacy Armed Forces in voting and the Casa Belay invoked military actions. There was a silence for a moment. I am System, he paused, wondering if he should use his self-proclaimed title or the council title, then went with the decision. I am the System Tyrant Karamatamaro of the Independent Karat Systems. I am here to parlay. The Terran paused. What is your allegiance to the Unified Council Systems? I stole these systems from them. We have not had any relation with them for many years, Karatamaro said. He decided to play stupid. Who is the Terran Confederacy, and by what right do you bring armed warships, cleared for action, beyond the resonance zone on one of my sovereign star systems? The Terran paused for a few seconds and nodded, and reminded Kratmao of a bad compunate conversation with Nag. We are at declared war and open stellar warfare with the Unified Council Systems, Tyrant Kratmao, the Admiral said. However, we also seek allies. I have no interest in any war. The Unified Council and its organs are vestigial parasites upon the galactic stub. Do with them as you may, but should you come here, you'll only find blood and slaughter, Gratimo said. He had made a motion with his hands. We cannot resist you. Your creation engines ensure that you have no supply lines. Your cloning arts ensure you do not need to delay for reinforcements. And your weaponry far outstrips my defenses, while your defenses are magnitudes more powerful than my strongest weapons. Kratmao touched his fingers together on all four hands. How much flesh and blood does it take for the primates to gag? How much blood will make it that you and your people are unable to look at yourselves in the mirror? Kratmao asked. You, Sigmor, I do not. Will you agree to a non-belligerent status and recognize the sovereignty and right to life of the Confederacy and its allies? The Admiral asked after a required lag. I'm empowered to do so. However, I am interested in making another offer. 
Kratmal stated. And that is... The Terran looked suspicious, and the cold amber glow seemed to brighten and warm slightly. A mutual defense pact to begin with, a trade of knowledge in addition to that. Finally, the eventual normalization of trade between the Karat systems and the Confederacy. Kratmao stated, We have no interest in war, but should the despotism of the Unified Council attempt to bring darkness to the worlds under my guidance, I wish allies I may depend upon as I defend myself. The Admiral again nodded slowly. That'll take some time to decide. This world will be a good place to hold the negotiations. It has agreed to host such an august occasion, as long as their leaders, who owe fealty to me, get to sign their names upon the documentation and are recognized as the hosts, Kratomo said. The Admiral waited a moment, paused for a few extra seconds, and nodded. Agreeable. It'll take me 19 hours to arrive at the planet. Please inform the planetary government that negotiations will be taking place and disarm the Doomsday Device, Kratmo said. I'll transmit the same. Doomsday Device? the Admiral asked. Kratmo nodded. We will never be enslaved again. The tyranny of the representation will never be given up. We will plan to crack our own worlds before we allow ourselves to be forced to kneel. Kratmo said slowly, We just want to live in peace, comfort, and cooperation. The admirals didn't change expression, but nodded again. I'll have my warships retreat to the resonance zone boundary, she said. Your flagship is welcome to orbit the planet. Your graciousness in having your military forces stand down will be noted during the negotiations, Kratmo said. I await your meeting. The Admiral nodded and cut the channel. The warships further in the system streaked away, reappearing at the system's edge. The flagship jumped only a few light seconds from the inhabited planet. Kratmao nodded to himself and turned his ship towards the planet. It was a gamble. Kratmao hated gambles. His vision was proceeding nicely. His goals were being met. The Terran's arrival didn't mean his plans were ruined. He had spent months adapting his plan to include them. Any system that could not adapt to new input was an inferior system, and inferior systems were never stable. Manted free worlds. You're kidding. He holds elections every ten years, and he's been re-elected nearly twenty times. Nothing follows. Tolkien Forge worlds. I've never even heard of these guys. Nothing follows. Tenvaru Gestalt Thingamabobber. We were on the High Council. I never even heard of this guy, much less the Krat systems. Whatever they are. Are you sure it's real? Nothing follows. Trinidad Highworlds. Without a doubt. Oh, and get this. He is known as a tyrant. His vice leader, who happens to be a local sentient, is called a despot. And his military leader is known as, uh, you gotta love this, the fist and the shield. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Sentient Systems. So this guy flat out stole an entire region of the council's territory, and nobody noticed. What convinced him to talk rather than fight? Or, well, planet cracked their own worlds. Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Systems. Chromium Christ. That they're willing to do that speaks volumes as to how they have to have been treated before this maniac showed up. Nothing follows. Ackletax, Auric Worlds, Gestalt, and I guess a weird governing thing. 
This creation engines, the fist and shield realize something about them. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. What? Let's see if he figured out when it took us forever to figure it out. Nothing follows. Hackletack Soaring Worlds doesn't read all thoughts, not just reads our email, so stop sending pinfeather pictures, perverts. That creation engines and cloning banks and suds on the ships mean that the Terran force supply lines and reinforcement lines are only as long as the nearest system they control or the system they're fighting in. All space force needs is an ore cloud or a gash giant and poof! They can completely rebuild ships, reload food and water, replace casualties, and even create more ships. That cloning banks mean the Space Force can run a few million planetary garrison troops, create a few support ships and creation engines, and jump to the next target in the time that it would take anyone else to get ammunition supplies and reload their guns. Nothing follows. Talcon Forge Worlds. That's one of the hardest things to understand. Your resupply is right there. Usually making a tri-V or something. Just a few menu selections and it's printing out Magak rifles, body armor, and emergency survival kits. Nothing follows. Hackletack, Soaring Worlds. Their fist and shield convinced Tyrant and his assistant to the despot that the Terran military wouldn't need to hang around and risk attack. That they'd move on to the next system, completely garrisoning and occupying the entire system all the way up to heavy armored vehicles. Every hour that went by, the Terran forces in the system would get stronger, not weaker. Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds, right. Normally, a military force is at its peak right after resupply, then gets weaker until the next resupply. With the Terrans and the creation engines, they just get stronger. Nothing follows. Rigelian Syrian Compact. Add in the cloning banks, and it gets damn near logarithmic. Nothing follows. Tinvurugastalt, Tinvurugastalt. So, um, these people vote on their leaders. Nothing follows. Mad Rewalds. They recreated the idea of a congress. His government consists of several counterbalanced organizations, including a room for dissidents. They also discarded the council legal code and created their own. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Notice they all politely ignore what must have been the bloodbath of epic proportions back when it all started. Nothing follows. Rigelian Syrian Compact. Now notice that all his military vessels are unique designs instead of council designs. Nothing follows. Trinidad Hive Worlds. I wonder if they'd be interested in selling those two worlds around the pair of red suns. Think they want them? Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Sentient Systems. How many times do I have to tell you? No, nobody wants those worlds but you, you freak. Das hugs THW. It wouldn't hurt to ask. Nothing follows. Tinvurugastalt. This is such a weird time to be alive. End of chapter. Chapter 265. The Black Box. Alien EE 37253 stared at the newcomers. A pair of Confederate Intelligence Agency field agents and a tall, thin Terran descent human who had a too smooth look of a clone. The clone showed no fear of the avatars of the Confederates' world walking ahead of them, dressed in common laborers' clothing. Lenny checked the database and discovered that, strangely enough, the clone was from the lower levels of the facility, 
who worked to ensure that the coolant lines for the massive data arrays and the Modisir computer stacks were clean. You are Ali NEE 37253, supervisor of this facility, the clone said without any preamble. Um, yes, Lenny said. Although I prefer the residents of this facility call me Mr. Lenny. I'm here for one of your patients, the clone stated without bothering to acknowledge Lenny's speech. One Sam UL4481, former prisoner, currently undergoing psychological treatment in this facility. Lenny nodded. We have such a person here, he said. You will turn him over to me, the clone stated. Lenny frowned. Excuse me, by what authority? One of the Confederate intelligence agents cleared her throat, a mild, quiet sound, and Lenny paled at the reminder that someone with complete authority was present. Confederate intelligence was, in Lenny's opinion, a fascist, vestigial organ of a bygone age, a ruthless organization that routinely violated rights and freedoms of Confederate citizens in the name of security, up to and including murder, desolation, and deletion. I do not recognize your authority here, Lenny said. This system is part of the digital artificial sentient systems, but Confederate intelligence has no jurisdiction here as this system is not a signatory of the Intelligence Activities Treaty. He crossed his arms, appearing huffy. Be very careful, Doctor, the clone said, his voice a menacing whisper. There are things taking place in this world that you do not understand, are not privy to, and could not comprehend. You will leave, or I will have security remove you, Lenny said, summoning the security anyway with a single thought. His scanners in the room showed him that the Confederate intelligence agents were not armed. As a matter of fact, they wore earpieces rather than a data link implant. You have made a terrible mistake, Doctor, but it will amuse me, the clone smirked, crossing his arms. Both Confederate intelligence agents reached up and loosened their ties, rolling their eyes. Security burst into the room, four digital sentients, sixteen clothes, four robot chassis piloted by digital sentients. Escort these, uh, these, uh, people from the facility. Take them to the starport. They no longer have consent to be here, Lenny said, looking at the security forces. He turned back to the trio just in time to see it. Both of the Confederate intelligence agents seemed to explode. Fur puffing out from them, along with the rags from their suits. In their places stood massive canine-human hybrids, rippling with muscle. Their fur, black and gray in patterns that seemed to ripple and change. Their eyes were bright red as they immediately blurred into motion. Lenny was a digital sentience. He stood in all in slow motion. The way their faces suddenly lengthened into muscles, the grimace of pain on both agents' faces and the way that they suddenly gained mass, muscle, bone, and sinew. How their forms tore apart their suits, how their fur exploded from their bodies. How the clone just watched, smirking. Lenny squealed as the two Confederate agents lunged forward. The sweep of one claw gutted the power pack from the robot chassis. Another was shattered by a strange sweeping kick. Jaws closed around the skull of another, crushing the endosteel head and the last were slammed against the wall to explode into pieces. The clones seemed to suffer micro-seizures and then stood there, none of them reacting. 
Worse, a dozen digital sentiences suddenly rudely thrust themselves into the computing spaces needed for the digital sentience computations. You have no idea what you are attempting to impede, the newly arrived digital sentiences all said. Then he noted that they were all dressed in combine and Imperium era dress, some in armor, others in official uniforms, all of them gleaming with attack and defense codes, all of them were digital warfare specialists. Time slowed as a dozen more appeared, and then another dozen. With a wrench of fear, Lenny realized that many of them looked like the appearances of a boogeyman, the supposed Agent Smith of the late night stories. The four digital sentences in the room backed up, shaking their heads and holding out their hands in supplication as Agent Smith, looking, DSs slowly advanced upon them. The two canine human hybrids had returned to being short, petite, Terran descent human females in suits with confederate lapel pins, the world being crushed by the human hand gleaming. They were both adjusting their ties. You will turn over Samuel 4481 to my custody, or I'll tear this crap heap down around your ears. Take him anyway, then plan a crack this misbegotten world around your ears. The clones around Lenny each said a different word, forming the complete sentence that the initial clone had finished. Go get him, Lenny ordered. Good plan, the original clone said. The other clones were marching away, heading back to the security office. The extra DSs in the system vanished one after another, leaving the four security beings, who snarled at Lenny and vanished, fleeing the system, which still echoed with cold malevolence. Lenny felt like he had a human equivalent of the shakes as he looked at the perfectly normal-looking pair of human females that just stood there impassively, as if they hadn't suddenly transformed into human canine hybrids and back again. After a moment of physical therapy, Frame entered the room. It was holding a fluffy purboy in its arms and gave off an aura of absolute misery. You wish to see me, sir? The DS in the frame asked Lenny. These... Uh, People want you to go with them, Lenny said. The DS turned the therapy frame to look at the three. What if I don't want to? He asked. The clone laughed. Trust me, boy. You want to come with us? It said. It leaned forward. Make it all mean something, boy. Make the kitty kitty's death have meaning. Make what you went through have meaning. There were purple sparks dancing on the clone's teeth. Samuel knew that he should be drawing back in fear, but couldn't find the energy to bother. But the skills that landed you in prison to work for me, Cloud said. I'm not supposed to touch Infinet or Solnet for the rest of my life, Samuel said. He pointed at the left-hand agent. Someone like her would delete me. The clone laughed. Boy, by the time we're done, the rest of those pathetic creatures of that DAS will be lining up to press their glorified maintenance program tongues on your ball sack. The clone laughed. They'll be here, running computational strings about how they're so much better than everyone, and you'll be a goddamn hero. Something stirred in Samuel's innermost code, where that leaking, painful wound was. He looked at Dr. Lenny, who shook his head. Don't. The doctor said, these people are dangerous. That made the clone laughed. Oh, uh, he's not wrong. Are you really dangerous? Do you don't look dangerous to me. You look like a laborer clone, Samuel said. 
That's because this planet doesn't recognize the Genomic Freedom Act and still custom grows clones with program mental engrams and limited intellect, McLeod said. He raised his arms up and took a little twirling bow. So much of this one cerebral tissue was smooth, unused for anything more than to eat, sleep, do a narrowly specific job. The clone looked at Lenny. Bray, when I am finished with my work, I do not come back and raise a hellscape world down to barren rock and howling isotopes. Lenny drew back fear. Samuel looked at the clone. Why do you want me? I'm a nobody. A criminal. The clone laughed. When you do it without permission, you're a criminal, he said. He tilted his head at one of the agents. When they come begging you, you're an asset with permission to do so much more than you would believe. Samuel thought about it. Thought about how he couldn't escape the dreaded moment when the tiny little biological life had slid through his digital fingers. How he felt so helpless, so pathetic, so weak and insignificant. My sentence hasn't been fully commuted. I'm still a prisoner, Samuel said. The doctor would have to release me. The clone smiled, reaching forward and putting one hand on Samuel's therapy frame's shoulder. My friend, where I'm taking you, all that matters is skill. If you live up to your reputation, then nobody will care. The clone promised. Trust me, boy. Come with us. Another glance and Samuel saw Dr. Lenny shake his head. Samuel felt that little bit of himself, that aberrant string of code that they were trying to smooth away, that had driven him to do things that he had done before he'd been arrested, suddenly rear up. He looked up at the clone, then at the two agents, and then back at the clone. I'm in. The trip was strange for Samuel. He loaded aboard a high-speed vessel that had enough processing power to let him move around. The clone had come along for reasons that Samuel didn't understand. They let him keep his poor boy, let him sit in a room by himself for days. The trip was strange. He could feel the thrumming of the upper band hyperspace travel and knew that the ship had to have almost unreal levels of shielding to keep the hyperatomic plane's particles from ravaging the computer systems, himself included. The ship dropped out of hyperspace, and one of the Confederate intelligence agents escorted him to a viewing blister, let him look out into the space to see where they were. A black box. Welcome to your new home, Sam, the agent said, her voice soft and quiet. Samuel just stared. Samuel felt strange as he walked down the hallway of the Project Overseer's office. He couldn't see that there were VR hallways overlaying the actual hallways. There were rooms full of computer equipment that had VR overlays of extensive laboratories inside. He passed clones that looked almost identical, that all nodded to him as he passed. As he approached the door to the office, it opened and a holographic avatar of a DS walked out. Hello, the DS said. They were using their appearance of a female Terran descent human with streams of multicolored code acting as body and clothing. Um, Samuel said before the DS sparkled and vanished. Come in, Sam, a deep voice said from inside the office. Sam went in, the door closing behind him, and stopped less than two steps into the office. Stasis cubes lined the walls. He could identify the contents, to an extent, just by looking at them. 
feline, canines, human-canine hybrids, human-feline hybrids, sleeping ones, and two small children with burning red eyes of enraged ones. Behind the desk sat a well-built Terran descent human with brown skin and bushy beard. He gestured to the seat that Samuel could tell existed in the strange VR overlay of the facility as well as in the physical world. Samuel moved up, sitting down and staring at the poor boy in his lap as it petted it. You're wondering why you're here, why I went through all the trouble of retrieving you, the man said. Samuel looked up, frowning. That clone, that was me, the other clones you see, me. If you'd like, I can manifest a digital clone of myself too, to speak to you if you'd prefer, the human said. What do you mean that they're you, as in cloned from you? Samuel asked. No, they're actually me, my consciousness multiplied, replicated. Each clone, be it physical or digital, are all me. My consciousness multiplied across every clone, but still me, the man said. Samuel stared and he realized who he was staring at. A figure from Earth, from legend, from some sort of the most harrowing video games out there. You're a legion, Samuel whispered. The man nodded. Yes, the rumors of my demise suited me. To escape your enemies, Samuel said. Again, the human nodded, and, well, you can guess the other reason. You, uh, just want left alone, like the rest of the immortals, Samuel guessed, quoting the line he'd heard in so many video games. Exactly, Legion said, smiling. He turned and waved his hand. I told you the kid was bright. Samuel jerked as he realized one of the diminutive Confederate agents had been standing near the wall the entire time. You're in charge of this project, we do not doubt, nor do we question your methods in regards to this project, she said softly. Do you know why I went through such lengths to recruit you, Sam? Can I call you Sam? Legion asked. Yeah, sure, Samuel nodded, gulping. Legion asking me if you can call me Sam. Oh, yes, he can. Enlighten me, Legion smiled. You want something hacked, Samuel guessed. See, I told you the kid was on the goddamn ball, Legion laughed. He turned back to Samuel. You hacked one of the most secured databases in existence, managed to extract one of the hottest intellectual properties in known space, and the only reason you got caught is because one of your distributors rolled on you. Yeah, Samuel said, reading the face of the android physical therapy frame, heat in a blush. The agent here and her sisters think that it isn't that big of a deal that I should have grabbed one of the dozens of hundreds who have cracked Confed databases, Legion said, waving his hands. He looked at the agent. Tell me, my dear, how many people have hacked Nebula Steam? The agent sighed. Only one in the past 400 years. The last hack was by a disgruntled former employee. Legion swiveled his chair back to face Samuel. You... You got in, you did what everyone, even Nebula's team, by Daxon's chrome ballsack, even Confederate intelligence said was flatly impossible. Legion grinned. It wasn't easy. It took me months, Samuel admitted. Has there ever been a security system you could not crack? Legion asked. Samuel nodded. A few. That made Legion nod. That answer, that truthful answer, is why I didn't delete you. 
Samuel felt the therapy frame android actually break out in a sweat. I'm gonna give you a chance to do the most important hack in human history, Legion said. More important than Shen Lang's hack of the nuclear power plant operating system to prevent a meltdown. More important than any hack ever. Samuel felt an odd stirring inside of him. Damn, look at that core coding light up, Legion said softly. He feels like he knows I'm not lying. He wants this, needs this. If you say so, the agent said. Samuel flushed again as he realized that not only was Legion right, he was staring directly at Samuel's core code. What could you possibly need someone like me to hack? Samuel asked. Legion smiled. Soulnet. End of chapter. Chapter 266 Lost Data He was grown to perform menial tasks, to scrub tile and stone, to polish metalwork, to serve meals, to mow lawns. His brain had been custom-designed to allow for little free thought and no introspection, consumed entirely with his duties that he had been born whole knowing. He was slender, with brown skin, bald, hairless below the eyebrows. His features were designed to be pleasing to view without being attractive, to allow him to blend in with the surroundings, but be easily visible for anyone looking for him. He also had a short shelf life of only two decades. After all, Menial could be easily replaced. He worked at the estate of one of the uber-rich. The family he served wanted for nothing, even in these days of fear and concern. The extinction agenda attack had left more than three quarters of Earth's landmass uninhabitable, although the Americans and Russians were making inroads on destroying the crazed vegetation and maddened wildlife through sheer stubbornness and application of firepower. Not that he knew this. He was a dull-witted, uninterested in such things as what was shown on TriV, what the news organizations had to say, or even rumors and discussions. His short-term memory was limited, and for something to enter his long-term memory required a custom device that would use flashing lights at the end of a pen to move the command to long-term memory instead of just vanishing into a haze of short-term memory. He was in the sub-level of the massive opulent mansion where it happened. He was cleaning, as was his purpose, changing the filters on the water tanks to scrape away the acidic algae. When it happened... The ground heaved, the walls shook, and the lights flickered, and the electronics squealed. The rumbles went on and on, but he paid it no attention. Then he needed to in order to keep his balance and keep working on the filters. When he was done, he attempted to use the servant's elevator so that he could mow the lawns, only to find that the power was still out. He didn't frown. He wasn't capable of frustration or expressions like that, he was only capable of performing his duties. After a few moments, he went and tried the service stairs. He found them blocked by rubble. He stood there for a long moment, unsure what to do. He reached up and pressed a button on the servant's insignia to alert his supervisor that he was in need of instruction. There was no answer. He waited for a period of time. He sensed the time passing was one that was developed in order to allow him to undertake tasks at certain times and for certain lengths of time. 
He began feeling discontent, unable to complete his tasks, when each attempt to contact the overseer went unanswered. Still, he knew what he could do. He could clear the stairwell. Without anything beyond a vague sense of purpose, he began clearing the stairwell, stacking the rocks by size and by type and pausing to sweep the floor and keep it tidy. Several times he slept on the ground for four to five hours and went back to work. There was a nutri-paste dispenser on the level and he ate at the allotted time for his allotted amount and drank when he needed to. He didn't know how long it took him to clear the stairs, but felt a sense of satisfaction at a job well done when he finally managed to open a space large enough for him to leave the stairwell. He had been moving rubble beyond the stairs, taking time to fashion a smaller rubble into stairs. After all, a job worth doing was worth doing well. When he exited the rubble, he looked around and felt as close to an anxiety as he could. The bushes were burnt away, the manicured lawns were nothing but blasted ash. The manor that he had cared for all of his life was smashed to rubble. It was raining gritty ashy snow that coated everything. He looked up and saw nothing but heavy clouds, but he did not know that what he was seeing was different. It took him some time to find the work he shed. He was lucky enough to find a few tools, and he set to work. After a time, he had the fertilizer mixed into the barren, ashy soil and cuttings of expensive and beautiful plants beginning to bud. For rest, he would return to the basement. He would drink, eat, sleep, eliminate waste, and return to his duties. The manor had a few spots that were still intact, part of the staircase, which he'd spent time cleaning and restoring, two walls on the corner that he scrubbed, a segment of the wall here and there, even managing to remove the shadows that looked slightly like people from one wall. He cleaned and polished linoleum, even with the pitting and the vinyl that the fallout created. He cleaned the vehicle repeatedly after removing the rubble from it, even scrubbing on the rust that slowly appeared. One day, things changed. He awoke and left the basement to check on the gardens that he had slowly grown and tended to find a man made entirely of streaming and swirling lights and runes standing with a large man whose body was grafted with mechanical bars. They were strangers. I'm sorry, this is private property. Show your invitations or leave, otherwise I'll be forced to summon security. He told them, Look at this poor sad bastard, my lord. The half-mechanical man said, It's been three years and he's still doing the menial labor he was grown for. The half-mechanical man reached out and pulled a gun from the compartment in his leg. I'll put him out of his misery. He just stared at the gun that was leveled at his face. He felt no fear, his brain unable to process the emotion. Stay your hand, Philip. The swirling mass of light said, reaching out one hand. The hand of light pushed the pistol down. He is the most least of us all, made in humanity's image without humanity's grace. Bertie, the poor creature, Philip, and stay thy hand. The figure's eyes blazed for a moment, lightning crackling around the pistol and up and down his arm, but then faded. The half-mechanical man sighed and put the pistol away, the compartment closing and making his leg look seamless. As you wish, my lord, the figure said. Come here, my child, the figure of light said. He moved up slowly, feeling the stirrings of uncomfortableness. Kneel down, my child, 
He knelt down, and a hand of light touched his brow. Arise, background Luke, and join me in healing our people. The digital Omni-Messiah commanded. End of chapter. First contact, chapter 267. Lost data. Venus, second planet from the sun. A cloud-shrouded globe known in ancient times as both Vasper and Lucifer. Air of carbon dioxide and clouds of sulfuric acid that rained down upon the basalt plains. An atmosphere as thick as the bottom of the Earth's oceans, with a surface temperature of 880 Fahrenheit, turning too slowly to create a magnetic field to protect it. It was an Earth that had failed. Then came humanity. Terraforming was difficult, expensive and expansive. The first to do was to increase the rotation, a seemingly impossible task that the best scientific minds were dedicated to. In less than 20 years, they managed to increase the spin so that it rotated in 20 days rather than 240. Although it still spun in the opposite direction of every other planet, next came seeding the planet. Comets were created and hurtled into the atmosphere, changing it one by one. It took nearly a hundred years to change the atmosphere, to extend it outward so that the pressure was relieved without losing the atmosphere to change the mixture into something survivable by humanity. Then came rain, filling up the basalt basin and huge plains. The crowns, the mountain ridges, the volcanoes became islands and island chains as water. Precious H2O filled the basins. Then came the shock troops, vegetation. But the planet was still almost merciless in its environment, slowly being tamed but still unapproachable by standard humans. Gulman was an orc. His people were genetically designed to be bred to survive the Venus surface, to work at terraforming the planet. His skin was green, his sweat was black, and his blood was dark, dark red. His hands were calloused and worn from the tending of the ferocious and unforgiving plants of his beloved Venus. He had lived his entire life on the surface of his beloved wild Venus. It was his mother, his daughter, his sister his wife, his secret lover. He could feel the movement of her waves, of her ocean expanses in his heartbeat, feel her winds in his breathing, feel her joy at wakening in the touch of the sun's light upon the green skin. He was sustained by her air, by the sun, and was one with the ecosystem. Even the extinction agenda attack upon the world had little effect upon him. Yes, it made the plants more aggressive, but it also made them more hardy. True, the insects and what few animals dwelt upon the surface were more aggressive, but they were Venus's children, as was he, and he lived in harmony with them. Even the ocean-dwelling creatures turned their fangs and fury upon mankind. But that was fine. Venus was young and prone to fits of temper. The Galmoan and the sight of ants the size of large rodents was nothing to fear. After all, they were part of the ecosystem just as Galmaan was. Occasionally, a human in a suit environmental armor would arrive to speak to the village elders, and often, when he was younger, Galmaan would try and overhear their words. Their language was strange, soft and lilting, unlike the roars of his own language. 
as if they did not have to be heard over the laughter of Mother Goddess Venus, as if their voices had grown to maturity somewhere without the wild passions of the Goddess Venus. Now that he was an adult, Golma Ar no longer worried about what the Humis might have to say. He was content to ensure that his honeysuckle grew onto the glittering ridge of basalt mixed with quartz. It would use its roots to fracture the rock, eventually turning the ridge that met the ocean into a beautiful beach. He was looking forward to it. He could imagine his children playing on the glittering beach, playing in the water and laughing. The goddess Venus would grow to be just as beautiful as her sister Terra, and Galma Arn would be one of the many who helped her achieve her beauty. He would live long, death largely defeated by his design, to be hundreds, thousands of years old as he helped the goddess Venus through her growing pains and the trials of adolescence. Then came the day of horror. From the skies came huge beams of light that touched the azure oceans of Venus, touched down upon the major islands where the Humis made their homes, where the light touched everything exploded. The city of the Humis and the gardens surrounding them blasted into molten rock and falling ash. The ocean water converted into steam in an explosive response to light. Galmoan and his village had been lucky. Sheltered by the glittering ridge and the small rise in the fitfully slumbering volcano, only wind and fury struck his village. Then came the rains. The blondes screamed and writhed in torment. The sun's rays were cruel, twisting the blondes even further, driving them mad, bringing them from subtle harmony into violent competition. No longer was Galmoan the blonde's brother. No longer did Galmoan care for anything beyond the goddess Venus, as he felt as if part of his mind had been stripped away. His goddess Venus was scarred and disfigured and cried out in pain. Galmoan and his people cried out with her. Galmoan was driven half mad by the goddess Venus's screams of pain. He grew larger, more muscular, his jaw thrusts outward, heavy tusks growing from his lower jaw. His bones thickened and his skin grew even more resistant. His coloration deepened. When the bug people came, landing in the crop, Galwaan killed with a rock and a spear, lured them to plants that ate tougher insects than them. He led ants the size of crawling child into their ships, the lines of hundreds eager for protein that the bug people would provide. Galwaan found that the bug men tasted good when roasted alive over a fire. His tribe ate well. They knew where to hide in the caves or the glittering cliffs. The plants relented and allowed them to hide within them. The bug people left, which Galmaan secretly regretted. They were delicious. He and his people went back to tending the goddess Venus's wounds. She was scarred, defiled, but she was their mother, and they loved her. One morning, a figure of light appeared, walking across the steaming seas of Venus. He was followed by four others in a boat they rowed. The figure stepped up upon the beach, and Galmaan went down to see the vision. He was slightly afraid of these figures. One was a huge human, more metal than man, whose joints hissed and whirred when he moved. Another looked dangerous to Galmaan, with tattoos on his face reminding Galmaan of the tattoos on his own. The other was thin, 
delicate appearing, with skin the proper brown color of the sons of Venus that had been bottled away by the skylights. The last was a woman, her skin pale, her hair black, a wound that leaked black blood down her front. Curious, Galmoan approached the figure, wondering who it was, who its companions were. The figure spoke the language of the people. Galmoan took them to see the village elder, the wise man, and the glimmering figure went into the elder's cave and spoke to the elder alone. Galmoan stared at the court and left, wondering who they were. The being made a sparkling light came out, motioning to Galmoan. What they spoke of has been lost to time and never recorded. All that is known is that when the digital Omni Messiah left Venus, Green Thomas went with him. End of chapter. Chapter 268 Pethok Smokes a Pack. The small trader only weighed a handful of megatons with a standard sextant and jump drives in the rear section. Vast cargo holds for its size and a bridge crew quarters jammed into the nose. It was a Terran make, its transponders squeaking a Terran code, and its drive signatures were on file as being from an older space trading corporation. While it was unusual to see civilian vessels this close to Trinidad space, it wasn't unheard of, since war zones could bring profit to the daring. The vessels looked a little weird and the computer control was hard to understand but the station chalked it up to the vessel's age, upkeep. The space station control gave permission for the small craft to dock at one of the main umbilicals and relaxed. There wasn't anything to worry about. It did pause for a moment, the computer system claiming it had to reorient, and a hiccup made it slightly confused on the precise maneuver required to dock. That wasn't unusual. Traders, even Terran traders, weren't exactly known for their upkeep, so the station wasn't worried as the trader paused, slowly rolling, then turning in space to orient itself within the stellar mass at the center of the system. Pathok was a warrior cast Trianidad of some experience. He had infiltrated Terrasol itself and pulled off a daring daylight heist from the armored transport on a Terran rimworld, even taken part in two successful military campaigns against the Terrans which is why he had no fear as he engaged the thrusters on his exopack, orienting himself and jetting over towards the space station. He had practiced in virtual reality until he no longer felt the fear at the idea of drifting across nearly 10 miles of vacuum, aiming for a small point on the space station. It helped that the matron aboard the craft who was overseeing the delicate military operations, codename I'll Take That, had flooded to the warrior's senses with pheromones to instill courage and remove fear. Still, Bethok was the only Trinidad warrior of ten-man assault force not to feel fear. After all, he had escaped a pursuit by literally dozens of Terran larvae during his daring heist two years before. Why would he fear a spacewalk? Time moved slowly for Bethok, clad in stealth armor, coasting towards the station. His blade arms were sharp and honed, his hands gripped the well-maintained plasma rifle, and his armored vac suit was capable of shrugging all but military-grade Terran weapons. He had faith in his stealth equipment, after all, and had worked for him on the land of terror itself. Eventually, he reached the space station, throwing out a magnetic grapple on the plasma cable. 
It only took two tries for him to latch it on and reel himself in, his squad mates following him. When they landed, they activated the magnetic boots and moved slowly across the surface of the station towards their goal. While graviton boots would have been more reliable and easier to use, they might have been detected by the station's graviton sensors. The same reason the exopacks had used compressed atmosphere rather than graviton. Pazak reached the target first, a hypercom relay, which could be used to alert any nearby military forces to the fact that the Trianidad had arrived to take control of the station. Pathok carefully opened the relay's control panel and moved aside for Durok to disable the hypercom's output mechanism while still allowing incoming transmissions. Once that was done, the group moved through the silence of space to the next target. Although they all felt nervous, keeping an eye on their atmosphere, they quickly disabled all eight of the automated weapons emplacements, simply cutting the command lines. They weighed that they would react to diagnostic requests and show green, but were unable to actually be used for defending the station. They left one target, the most important. Once they had arrived at the target, Pazark faced the ship and flashed his suit lights four times, letting the ship know it could stop the masquerade in dark. The ship flashed its lights once more and reoriented to make the dock at the docking spindle. Pazark entered the airlock with his squad and cycled it, the system already disabled so that the main computer would have no idea that the airlock was being used. The nitrogen was almost non-existent, and Pizok shook his head. His men would have to remain suited, but that was expected. He made a motion, reminding his men not to use radio, and led his two subordinates towards his goal while the other two leaders led their teams towards their objectives. The station had no idea that Pizok was even on board. The first hint that Harry Dendles had was when the door opened and a huge armored insectoid stepped into the control office and threw in a stun grenade. The Trinidad didn't move through the executing everyone, instead used heavy cargo straps to tie the humans down. Which one of you are the station manager? Pithok asked, trusting his translator. Me, Harry said from the floor, where he'd been virtually mummy-wrapped by the Trinidad who were taking no chances with the legendary primate strength. Bring him, Pathak ordered. Can I ask where? Harry asked, visions of being roasted over a fire and eaten dancing in his mind. I have questions to ask you, Pathak asked. Personally, he was glad that he was in armor. He could see the status of the other members of his squad and see that their stress pheromones were high. The matron's blessing must be wearing off. He changed channels to talk to his men. Flush your pheromones. I don't want you to become overly anxious or aggressive. Pithok ordered. Each one flashed an ascent over the armor, and he watched as their anxiety levels dropped. Being trapped with one's own pheromones could cause problems. His armor suddenly updated with a map of the station, and Pithok knew that Duroc had managed to hack into the station's computer core. He led the humans to his own office as his two men carried the properly trussed up human. Once inside, he motioned at the two of his men to put the human in his chair. The first, the bindings posed a problem as the human was stuck full body extension. 
since the straps were wound all around his body. Unwinding them once around his waist would mean undoing some of the ones winding around his arms and legs. After a moment, Kalanaat looked up. Um, sir, we can't undo the straps, the Trianidad warrior said. Bethlock sighed, filling his suit with a smell of frustration. Luckily, he learned a bit about humans when he had valiantly infiltrated Terra. If you give me your word not to be stupid, to use your phrase, I'll untie you, Pathok said. He saw the atmosphere was steadying out and opened his face shield. The human nodded. You've got my plasma rifle, man. No problems, I'm just a station supervisor. Excellent, human, Pathok looked at the desk. Harry Dandles, he looked at his men. Untie the human, he has promised to behave. His two men nodded excitedly. Of course the human had agreed. He must have recognized Pathok, hero of ice cream. They untied the human, who sat in his chair, rubbing his arms. You aren't going to blow up the station, are you? Harry asked. Pathok could smell fear and anxiety pouring off the human, and had to resist the urge to shoot the human before it could attack him. Pathok shook his head. Another thing he had learned on terror. No, that would run counter to my purpose and my vision. Oh. Harry said. He sighed and pointed at the rectangular package on his desk. Look, my nerves are shot. Do, do you mind if I smoke? The two warriors looked at Pathok. Why would the human be asking if he could emit smoke, or even smolder? Pathok remembered cigarettes, dimly, from his time on terror. It was something humans did when stressed or trying to maintain their emotional comfort or attempted to relax. He nodded. Of course... Harry tapped on the pack of the desk and opened it, pulling out one. He lit the lighter and looked at the big trianidad who had its faceplate open. He held the pack out. Want one? Bethok felt a surge of panic as he realized the other two warriors were staring at him. He tried to show no trace of the anxiety he could feel surging up and the smelling of his own pheromones as he nodded and reached out. He took one, put it in his mandibles, and then accepted the light and inhaled the smoke and waited to die. Instead, when he exhaled the smell of anxiety and his armor faded away, replaced by the soothing smell of smoke. Standing up straight, he took another long puff on it, exhaling the same out of his mouth. The smoke rushed down his secondary breathing system into his big lungs in his abdomen and filled his blood and ichor system with nicotine. He exhaled through his legs and some out of his mouth beating himself calm. Do you have another package of smokes? Pathak asked mildly. And uh, a lighting device? Um, sure, Harry said. He dug an extra pack and a light out of his desk and handed it to the big insect. Pathak's mind felt much clearer, much calmer, as he stood in the station commander's office. He could no longer smell the terror sphere and anxiety, which made him calmer. His men stared in shock. They knew Pathak was a legend, but the fact that he was standing there, a lit tube of some kind in a plant wrapped in cellulose paper in his mouth, inhaling the smoke, and not dying, was incredible. They felt awe and being in his presence. What do you need? Harry asked, realizing he might be able to get out of this with his skin intact. Not only that, he might even be able to convince the Trianidad not to blow up the station and kill all 50 personnel aboard. When is the next man to transport you in? Pathak asked. 
exhaling smoke. His armor was whining a bit about having to be pushed the smoke out of the leg atmospheric ejectors since it ID'd smoke as an environmental hazard. But he overrode the armor to no longer produce an alarm and to use the ejectors around his footpads. I'll have to check the records, Harry said. To be honest, the big Trinidad warrior, with smoke wafting out from around his feet from the cigarette, was a little intimidating. He didn't fidget like the other two. He held, perfectly still, staring at him with compound eyes from inside his helmet. No tricks, human Harry Dandles, the thought warned, emulating removing the smoke from his mouth and tapping at the ash into a small tray on the human's desk. To be honest, Bethlock was enjoying not having the mission jitters. Harry just nodded, bringing up the data on the terminal and turning the screen so that the big warrior could see. Later today. Excellent, Bethlock said. I will be leaving men to guard the station. Once we accomplish our mission, we'll leave. Bethlock felt a moment of confidence come over him. Cooperate with me, but I'll even leave without blowing up your station, sparing all your lives. Harry nodded. I want you to run a search on your stalls. I wish to know if you are in possession of the substance, the thok said. He leaned forward and used a blade arm to tap in what he wanted. Harry checked. They had plenty. It was easy to make and it improved morale. Yes, we have plenty. The thok nodded. He took another drag and realized that he was getting close to the brown end. He tapped one entry point on the screen. Have a container of that brought up to the docking bay, along with proper implements of some of the... Bethocling closer. That. Bring a bottle of that. Um, of course, Harry said. I'll have a robot do it. No drinks. Do not hurt the human. Just guard him. Bethoc ordered, stubbing out the smoke like the human did. He closed his faceplate. I'll be speaking to the matron. The others signaled the scent, still amazed at how calm Bethoc had been while dealing with the Terran who still looked fearsome to them. Bethok moved through the station, arriving at the rest of the strike force boarding the station. He ordered them to ensure the humans could not interfere with the mission, but otherwise to not impede them in their tasks. In the docking bay, a robot was waiting, and he ordered it to follow him. He started to feel anxious as he moved to the ship, heading for the matron's quarters. The pheromones didn't help, so he opened his faceplate and lit another smoke from the pack. By the second drag, he didn't feel as anxious and breathed a long inhalation and exhalation of relief. He tapped a control and his helmet folded up around his neck. It was not permitted to enter the chambers of the matron with one's head shielded and armored. He touched the signal pad and waited. The door opened up immediately and the rich, thick smell of matron pheromones filled his senses and withdrew when he took a drag of the smoke. The matron eyed Pesach as the large male warrior entered. The sight of him and his delicious-looking head made her quiver. Once the mission was over, she fully intended mating with him and eating his head. She let the pheromones of excitement flow from her, knowing that it would transmit to the big warrior cast Trianidad. Instead, he just stood there, some kind of white chew with a beige end on his mouth. The far end, burning and wafting in thin streams of smoke. Your mission? The matron asked, puffing out more pheromones. Part one is complete, matron, Pathok said, feeling smugness deep inside. Her pheromones were easy to ignore, the smoke leaking out from his collar and wafting up from the burning end, masking the pheromones. 
The matron stared at Bethuk, sensing nothing but a deep calm from the warrior. Perhaps the other matrons are right. Perhaps there is something special about this one, she mused. After all, he planned this raid, promised us something that we can never dream of. Bethuk was keenly aware of the matron's inspection of him, and didn't feel the fear that most of the males felt in the presence of the matron. He wasn't afraid that she would suddenly eat his head, and knew that if she moved towards him, he would calmly refuse and run away like any sensible male. What is that robot holding? the matron asked. Proof that what I claim is true, Bethuk said. He turned to the robot, opening the container, and filled the bowl, added some sauce, and put a spoon in it. Do not eat the bowl or the metal-eating implement, just the soft stuff. Go slowly, they can cause pain if eaten too fast. He handed the bowl to the matron, who looked at the small amount at the bottom. This is the miraculous substance you promised will change everything. Bethuk nodded. Yes, matron. You better be right, the matron said. She picked up the metal eating implement, noting that it was freezing cold, and she took a single bite. It was cold, but tasted amazing. Tastes blossomed in her mouth. When she exhaled through her mouth to warm it, and the complex protein chains had sensed her delicate antenna, bringing more pleasure coursing through her mind. Bazok smelled the pheromones and quickly lit another cigarette, so he had two in his mouth. The matron heeded Bazok's advice. Looking at the male out of the corner of her eye, he was as much or more handsome than she had previously realized. Very little, too. She could tell in the fearless way that he looked at her, admiring her beauty. After all, what was it to admire? She was a powerful and wise matron who had laid many broods of eggs and eaten hundreds of heads. The bowl was empty too quickly, and the matron howled out the bowl. More, she asked coyly, fluttering her wings, knowing that they were flushed with blood. More will make you intoxicated to the point of delusions of grandeur, Pathok warned. The humans call it being high, and it should be avoided. Oh, the matron said, pouting slightly with a droop of her antenna and a sad clacking of her mandibles. She realized something with a start. While she definitely hoped that such a spine specimen as Pathok would realize just how attractive she was, even for an older matron whose carapace color was beginning to fade, she no longer felt the driving urge to mate, no longer felt the hunger to mate and devour his head. The idea of mating was more a dreamy, drowsy thing that made her abdomen warm rather than a burning desire that she couldn't wipe out of her mind. She looked at the bowl. The, the substance, she said softly, rubbing her wings together and luxuriating in the drowsy, sensual pleasure of it. The substance is amazing. You're right. We must seize more of it. Show it to the hive queens, the high matrons. Bethok tapped out the smoke. Try this, matron, another human secret. I wrested from them with guile and cleverness. The arousal of excitement pheromones was thick, and the matron was amazed that Pathok dared to lean close. Put the tube in her mouth, in her sharp, deadly mandibles, and then light the tube. She inhaled and then exhaled, like and suggested. She felt a calm come over her, and the smell of her pheromones receded. Her antenna raised in surprise. I will sign one of my men to you, matron, Pathok said. I know they will be safe with you now. The matron nodded. 
To be honest, she'd rather have another little scoop of that wonderful substance and another smoke than eat a male's head. At least there wasn't a body to dispose of or bury for the grubs to eat when they hatched. As for himself, Bazok searched out the stalls and found whole cartons of packs of smokes, even little machines that could have liquid added to the same effect. He ordered his men to carry a pack at all times, to have a lit one in their mandibles when approaching the matron. He took one of the machines and convinced a human to decorate it with precious stones. The matron looked up at Bethok and entered her chamber again. She felt a little silly about how she had tried to seduce the big warrior before the mission was over, and hoped that he would not berate her. Instead, he just knelt down and held a small device and a bottle infuser out to her. What is it? she asked. Bethok realized he had no idea what to call it. He thought fast. A power smoker, fit only for the wealthy and sophisticated such as yourself, matron. Phew, he thought to himself when he saw her antennae perk up. She took it and examined it. What does it do? You simply put the tube in your mouth and press the button and inhale as if you were using a smoke. I have loaded it with something called the bubblegum treat flavored smoke. Bethok said, his own basic smoke keeping away the slight tang of misery pheromones. The matron followed Pathok's instructions. She felt a sudden relief as the slight nagging feeling of being a failure left her, and her own pheromones receded. The taste was absolutely delicious. She started to take another hit off of it and looked at Pathok. May I take more than one hit off of it? The matron asked. The human who showed me how to use the device, on pain of death, Pathok lied about that part, showed that you can inhale more and completely surround yourself in a thick cloud. The matron inhaled deeply, exhaling through her legs as hard as she could. The entire room was filled with a cloud of vape smoke. It vanished the old lingering pheromone, wiped away sense of thoughts of discussions before. The matron rubbed her wings in shock. The humans have been keeping this from us. Yes, matron, Pathok said, exhaling his own smoke. The matron approved of that. It let her senses know that he was there, unlike pheromone maskers, but it was easier to handle. Then I hereby approve of your dangerous raids into human space, she said, her wings quivering slightly. First, they dare think that they can wrest those valuable planets from us, deny us the cold warmth of the red sun and the soft feel of the sand and the sweet smell of nitrogen, and they withhold two wondrous secrets. Pathok nodded. I see more clearly than I have in my entire life, Pathok, the matron said. You were right. We must wrest this from the humans. We will commit this raid. Show the humans that the Trianidad are to be taken most seriously. She paused for a moment. Then we'll make our demands to them. Bazark nodded slowly, and the matron approved of how solemn the human gesture looked. We will demand they seek control of the planets we desire, and give us the secrets to ice cream and smoke, the matron commanded. As you will, O oh matron, Bazark said. He saluted and began to leave. Oh, Bazark, the matron called out. Bazark slowly turned, feeling fear but the smoke preventing the pheromones from being scented. Yes, so, matron. If your raid is successful, you and I shall breed, the matron said. 
Pesach wanted to scream and run away. He knew it would happen sooner or later. He was doomed. What kind was the third variant taste I tried with that sauce? The matron asked. Strawberry ripple with hard chocolate sauce, sauce Pesach said. Mmm, the matron hummed, rubbing her wings in pleasure. Bring that, it tastes better than your head ever could, and that shell was pleasantly crunchy. And more of this liquid of my power smoker. As you wish, matron, Pathak said. He saw the matron, ignoring him, preferring to stare at the star chart. He hurried out, sagging slightly in relief as he walked down the hallway. His men saw his relaxed saunter and knew that if Pathak was that sure of the plan, there was no way that it could fail. Soon they would raid the terrans of the secret ice cream, and it would be theirs. As for himself, Bethok raided the storerooms and made sure that he took half the power smoker liquid. After all, when the matron had expressed interest in you, it never hurts to make preparations. When the manta trader docked, their airlock cycled and opened up to the umbilical, and the manta crewman stared in shock. A huge Trinidad warrior stood in the airlock, a cigarette in his mandibles and a plasma rifle in his hand. I believe you have my property, Pathak drawled out, just like the Terran in his favorite trivee show. He exhaled the smoke and motioned with the plasma rifle. If you comply, you will come to no harm. The speaker aboard the vessel weighed his chances. A cigarette-smoking Trianida with a plasma rifle with at least a full military squad behind him could easily kill his entire crew. The speaker cursed to himself for not bringing a few warriors with him, but all the warriors were being held back at the hive homes. With a sigh, the speaker gave over command of his ship. The Trianidad warriors were unusually focused to the speaker's psychic senses. The matron was not the barely responsive ball of breeding urgency, but rather a calm and focused on something. It was strange, and the speaker didn't like strange. He let the usually focused Trianidad take his ship, trusting their promise to return soon. He watched as the ship vanished into jump space. He thought for a second about overwhelming the mines in the station and taking the Trinidad ship, but changed his mind. Revealing his abilities now would ruin the decades of planning. Nalmec 4 was a standard agricultural planet. They produced wheat, sorghum, corn, soybeans, alfalfa, potatoes, and tobacco. There were sheep, pig, cow, and other farm animals. Factories took the raw food and turned it into foodstuffs. From bread to steaks to mutton to ice cream to cigarettes. True, it was near the Trinidad dispute zone, but it wasn't exactly a priority military target, and the close proximity to Mestakala and the Republic Navy base there at only seven light years made sure that they could scream for help. Pathak stood on the bridge, cigarettes in his mandibles, surrounded by the smell of bubblegum as his matron stared at the planet below. You're sure this is the planet we want? She asked, puffing on her power smoker. Positive, Pathak said confidently. He pointed to the two flattened container labels. Delmac Ice Cream and Dairy Corporation was written on the one. Manufactured on Delmac was on the other. Bazok removed the smoke from his mandibles and gestured with it to the pilot. Take us in for a landing. Get ready. The matron rubbed her wings together with glee and exhaled the pink bubblegum vape across the bridge. She had completely forgotten that burning, all-consuming desire to breed. 
The secrets of ice cream and cigarettes will be ours, she crowed. Pithok left the bridge, smoking his mandibles to gather his men. A daring raid was waiting. End of chapter. Chapters 268. Historical Archive. Pithok and the Great Ice Cream Raid. Dalmec 4 was a standard agricultural planet. They produced wheat, sorghum, corn, soybeans, alfalfa, potatoes, and tobacco. There were sheep, pig, cow, and other farm animals. Factories took the raw food and turned it into foodstuffs, from bed to steaks to mutton to ice cream to cigarettes. True, it was near the Trinidad Dispute Zone, but it wasn't exactly a priority military target and the close proximity to Mr. Carter and the Republic Navy base there at only seven light years made sure that they are screened for home. The Republic shipped the goods on Dalmec for all over the Republic, supporting the colonies of Terra. Pathok was more than a little nervous. Terrasol was only 30 light years away, the disputed zone and Trianidad space only 10 light years behind him. While Terran space was big, only roughly 50 light years, and they had possessed nearly 15 colonies in addition to the heavily protected core worlds. Pathok was still very nervous. He did not mind admitting it to himself, although he found that contemplating it over a bowl of ice cream topped with butterscotch sauce and then smoking a cigarette made it easier to think about. The Terrans had attempted to colonize two worlds that the Hive worlds had slated for being used for expansion. Both worlds had been prepared, with the proper creatures in the sand to give the grubs a good meal as they grew and the proper vegetation. The Trinidad could not believe the temerity of the Terrans, and so they had declared war. They had even managed to wrest two star systems, both of them with red suns from the Terrans, and even take two colonies on disgustingly wet worlds underneath dangerous yellow suns. But unlike every other mammalian race the Trinidad had discovered, the Terrans could fight. They could fight and fight hard. Even mounted warriors and speakers were not as dangerous as the Terran, as the Trianidad had learned during the two years of warfare. Which is why Pathok carefully studied the maps of the primary target that the ship's scanners were able to discern. Pathok had to admit, the mounted vessel had amazing scanners. He had not expected a mentor trading vessel to have scanners able to read the data plate on the back of a ground car from orbit, but he was glad the ship possessed them all the same. The matron had agreed the mission was of great importance. She approved from Pithok's targets. The Goody Scoop Ice Cream Company, for one, that was the primary target. The What You Got to Lose Tobacco Company was the newest target. Pithok managed to identify a distribution point for both companies, where the trucks full of products came in and were unloaded before the contents were loaded onto a ship to distribute the product around the Republic. Finally ready, Pithok entered the bridge and gave the signal. The pilot, a talented worker cast male who was a good shot with a plasma rifle in addition to being a gifted pilot, glanced at the worker cast at the communications computer, who nodded. A cigarette howled in his mandibles. The communications specialist opened a channel to the ground side. Right as it was answered, the pilot looked at Pathok. Sir, your cigarette, he said. Oh, Pathok took the cigarette out of his mouth and handed it to the pilot. The screen cleared, showing the beige-skinned human with the dark hair. 
Sontair City Space Traffic Control. How can I help you? Yes, we need a landing permission. We are here to discuss trading with the Manton High Worlds, the Thok said. On the side of the screen, the overlay of a Manton speaker repeated what Pathok had said, using Manton body language instead of Trianidad. It was an excellent piece of software. Birth 9, the human said with a cut into the channel. Well, that was rude, the matron said, puffing out a loud cloud of blueberry cream around herself, easing everyone's agitation. No matter... I will rest the ice cream and smoke from them despite their rudeness, Pithar promised. He looked at the pilot. Take us in, Kalakak attack. Edge command, sir, the pilot said. He motioned at the cigarette in his mouth. Do you wish this returned, great one? Keep it. Piloting the ship must be stressful. I, for one, am grateful for your skills, Pithar said. He headed for the lift. I'll be with my men. The matrons eyed Pathok as he entered the elevator. Yes, he would bother many grubs. The Manta trader ship landed in the dark of night. Two security drones moved close, just in case there was a problem. Two accurate shots from a heavy plasma rifle cut at them and the two teams of Trianidad warriors bolted for the two different warehouses while the third sprinted at nearly 50 miles an hour at the Spaceport Control Center. Bazark fired his plasma rifle twice, caving in the doors and rushing in. There was a sign of proclaiming which way the security, and he waved two men that way. Stun only, he reminded them. The other five men followed him as he charged down the hallway, shooting open the door to the control room. He had carefully examined human media to make sure anything that he could say to the humans would carry the most weight. He'd chosen to go without a helmet, instead wearing a cloth head covering like a Terran engaged in nefarious deeds would, as well as a snazzy hat. He charged into the room, seeing a half-dozen Terran females and a dozen Terran males sitting at the workstation. Reach for the sky! Pathok yelled out, firing two shots into the ceiling. This here is a hold-up! The Terran stared at the six Trinidad warriors, easily almost ten feet tall. All of them wearing baklavas and cowboy hats, as well as Trinidad combat armor, and carrying Trinidad plasma rifles. They raised their hands. Keep your fingers off silent alarms, no cops! One Trinidad, excited over it all, ordered waving his plasma and rifle around with one hand while clacking his blade arms together. I see a cop and all of you are dead. Another Trinidad warrior threatened, running over to crouch down and look out the window. Nobody do anything stupid and you'll all live to go home to your kids, the thought promised, scuttling over to a Terran with the most elaborate decorations, including facial tattoos and piercings. Bethok pointed at him. You, facility manager... You will do my bidding. I'm the janitor, the impressively decorated human said. Oh, Pathak turned around, reaching into his combat harness. The Terrans flinched. Who's the manager? May Terran gulped and raised her hand. Pathak pulled out his pack of cigarettes, opened it, and then let one he retrieved. The human seemed to relax as Pathak put the pack away. Come over here, stand by me. Anyone pulls anything, I see any cops, you'll be the first, Pathak threatened. The Terran female nodded, moving over by the massive Trianidad. Smoke! 
Berserk asked. Now that he had them all cowed and submissive, the movies had shown that they should be polite and sociable. Um, thank you, the Terran said. She lit up and handed the pack back. Berserk watched two of his men quickly search the desks for passwords, finding them, and then going to work on the computers. One man was to get the robotic systems to lay the loading tracks to the ship. The other was to start listing freights had to be loaded. The third man crouched down in front of the terminal and began furiously typing, searching the Terran infinet for information that the Trianidad so desperately needed. The fourth and fifth crouched down by the windows, peeking out, watching for cops. One opened the window and stuck the barrel of his grenade launcher out, an EM homing grenade loaded up. After a moment, Pathak realized that the room had both male and female Terrans in it. The Terran next to him was the largest of them, thick of body and limb. You have many males here. Are they all yours? Pathak asked. Um, they work for me, the shift manager said, her mind whirling at what was happening. No, no, are they yours when you are overcome by breeding lust? Pathak asked. What of the lesser females? Um... I don't get overcome by breeding lust, the Terran said. Pazok turned and looked down at her. You don't? Does that mean you don't enter breeding heat and, uh, what does that thing mammals do? Ovulate, right. I, don't you ovulate and devour the lesser females and then breed with your males? No, I use birth control, the female said. Birth control, Pazok said. He tapped his blade's arms nervously against his chest plate. What is birth control? Tell me, and perhaps I'll reward you. The Terran female just stared. Uh, it's just an implant. It releases hormones into my bloodstream that keeps me from ovulating, releasing eggs into my womb, so I can't get pregnant unless I turn off the implant. Pathak thought for a long moment. That seemed impossible. Controlling breeding cycles? Why, you might as well try control verum... Pathok pulled out his small data pad and handed it to the Terran. Write down everything you know about this birth control, and when we leave, I'll spare all of your lesser females and captive males. Of course, just, um, don't hurt them, okay? The female Terran said. Pathok just nodded, his mind spinning Controlling egg production? Insane! Impossible. But what if it wasn't? What if it can be done? Sir, I've got it. They left part of the database unsecure. There's hundreds of recipes. His warrior searching infinite said excitedly. Don't load it all. We are indeed lucky men, Pathlock said. The hold is 90% full, sir. One is watching the robotic loading system said. Sir, we need to know something. The one tagging infantry was said to be loaded. What? Pathak asked. Where does milk come from? The warrior asked. Pathak turned to the lean female. Where does milk come from? Cows. Moomoos, the Terran said. She tapped the notepad. Those. Pathak stared. There were millions of brown-furred, four-legged herbivores on the planet. Of course, it made perfect sense. Stop loading, Pathak said. We need to save room. He turned to the human. Input the care and feeding for the moo-moos. The chef leader was completely confused as she did it. Complying with the hostage takers was the best way to survive a hostage situation. But what they wanted was so confusing. 
she handed the small data pad back. Signal the teams, withdraw the ship, we must carry out an additional mission, the Zox said. When the two watching the window counted that all the Trianidad were aboard the ship, Bislock busted out the window with the butt of his plasma rifle and had his men climb out. He looked at the Terrans. Thank you for your cooperation, he said, and then raced out at top speed for the ship. The matron watched as Bislock entered the bridge, exhaling smoke from his legs. Find a large grouping of these creatures, Bislock ordered, tossing an image from his data pad to the main viewscreen. Set down quietly near them. They are easily startled and weigh as much as a warrior. One of those, the matron asked, exhaling blueberry cream, which seemed to calm the bridge crew the best. Moo-moos! They are the animal that produces the substance known as milk, which is a mammary gland nutrient fluid. It's the secret ingredient to ice cream, the sock said excitedly, taking another drag of his cigarette. Located not far away, the pilot said. He looked back. We're setting down... We'll collect some males and some females, the matron ordered. I shall have several old grub hatcheries converted to habitats for them. She could imagine the envy of all the other matrons, including the local hive queen, if she built a lavish moo-moo habitat to ensure the production of ice cream. As you command, matron, Bethok said, still thinking over what the human had said. She wasn't consumed by breeding frenzies. She could control her urge to breach and give birth. Trana Ad Society, since the dawn of time, had centered all around breeding cycles. Wars had been fought over breeding cycles. The majority of males were fated to die at the mandibles of females. Controlling breeding, as insane as it sounded, as impossible as a concept as it seemed, could break that cycle that dominated Trinidad life. And Vizak knew he'd really like to keep his head uneaten, especially with a matron-spoken desire to mate with him. I must go command my men, Bethok said. The matron waved idly, exhaling smoke, as she imagined the incredulous rival matrons who would gnaw at their own blade arms with envy at the lavish habitat that she would construct. The ship landed with a bump on the Rio Carga hatch lowered. The Moomoos paid no attention to the Trinidad warriors rushing out to meet them and stopped. Get on the ship! Bothok ordered, waving his plasma rifle at the Moo Moo. The Moo Moo opened one eye, looked at him, and closed that eye again. Sir, the Moo Moo is ignoring my commands, one of his men said, rubbing his wings in agitation. Bothok stared at the mammal. It was huge, massive, maybe more than a warrior. It was heavy with muscle, a thick furry hide, a large head, and a ring at its nose. It was studiously ignoring him, and he realized with surprise that the creature was asleep. Curious, he reached out and grabbed the ring. It was warm and slightly slimy, and the Moo Moo opened its eyes. This way, Moo Moo, this way, the thought jittered, gently tugging on the ring. The Moo Moo followed. Emulate me, man, the thought ordered. He led the Moo Moo on board the ship, then rushed out to another one, and another and another. He sent ten of his men out to grab the large bales of grain, something called a vulva and yellow ones called hay, and then approached one of the even larger ones with horns. He grabbed the ring and said, Follow me, Moomoo, follow me. The large Moomoo's eyes opened. It glared and suddenly rushed forward, slamming into the sock and knocking him into the air before stopping, 
passing gas and going still again. One who pawed at the ground for a moment. Sir! One shouted, leveling his plasma rifle. No! Just stun it. Get a graviton loader. We'll carry it up and put it in a stall. Pathak ordered. They had nearly all the boomers loaded up when Pathak heard a human shout. He turned and saw a human with a rifle. Cattle rustlers! Boy! Call the sheriff! The human yelled, leveling the rifle and firing. The round was by Pathak. Men, retreat! We must hurry before the sheriff arrives! Pathak called out, imagining a huge war mech with a star painted on its chest. He and his men rushed back onto the ship, one pulling a grav dolly with an unconscious mean boo-boo on it. The human chased him, waving his rifle and firing shots that kept missing. Once on board, Pathak slapped the combat and, Lift off! Hurry! The cops are coming! The ship lifted off, even as the cargo ramp slowly raised. Pathak breathed a sigh of relief as the ship screamed into space, breaking orbit and vanishing into jump space. He slumped in relief as he lit a smoke and sought out the matron. She was just finishing a bowl of ice cream and the room full of scented bubblegum. Matron, our raid is even more successful than we thought, Pathak said. Oh, the matron signified interest. She had to admit, Pathak was quite handsome. She fluttered her wings and gave him a coy look, feeling like a young matron again. Pathak checked his notepad. The Terran had put information about birth control on it, including describing it, describing the mechanism by which it worked, and even the different brands and types. Many were confusing and obviously intended for Mominian biology. Keep an open mind, as you did about the ice cream and the smoke, the thought said. He handed her a notepad. Another human secret I wrested from them with guile had cunning. The matron looked at the data and suddenly stopped. She exhaled bubblegum scent slowly and then took a deep drag of the power smoker. The concept is insane, she blurted out, but, uh, but, uh, how did we never think of this? How did we never think of any of this? Would you do it if you could, matron? Pathak asked, tensing to run out the room if she took offense. I mean, if you could break the tyranny of the birthing chamber, would you do it? The matron nodded. Yes, it consumes the matron's life. This, uh, this seems so impossible, yet so simple. An impossible concept, an easily achieved medical research project. She sighed, wistfully. To be freed. Then accept that no bad matron with my undying awe at your presence. The thought said, backing out the room. The matron didn't even notice puffing absently on her power smoker and reading the articles downloaded from the Terran Infinite and the testimony of the Terran shift leader, an obviously important and grand station. To be free, she thought as the ship raced for the space station. End of chapter. Chapter 269, Lost Data. It started out like a lot of things in the late pre-glassing terror. As the infonet, solnet joke, and the image board, it spread to VR social rooms, then to cosplay, then to fashion as it made its migration across solnet. It managed to even do the most elusive of migrations, from solnet insider joke to normie culture, until it was referenced in TriV and movies and even the news. The Extinction Agenda attack had left the majority of Terrasol colonies and Terra itself a dangerous wildland. 
full of aggressive and deadly plants, aggressive and deadly animals, all coded to find humanity a delicious source of protein. It was an ugly time. Humanity retreated to fortress cities, hab complexes, even domed cities. Resources had to be conserved, meted out, and carefully shepherded to ensure survival. Humanity did not doubt its survival. They put their faith in the human spirit, ingenuity, and scientific pursuits. People found a way to grin, even if it was a grimace, during these terrible times. It started out as a single image, a bit dark humor after the loss of cats and dogs only a few decades prior. Someone had found it on one of the old archive sites that had scanned the internet and ensured the data wasn't lost. A feline in a mech made of boxes with the word Mad Cat on it. Then another image joined it, a cat in an exosuit with a gun that read Free to a Bad Home. Then another cat image, and another, and another. The laughter was tinged with sadness, but there was laughter all the same. Since the friend plague, nobody had dared to try hybrid splicing. Everyone knew the dog boys had died in mass, which had led to a deep mourning. Still, someone will eventually try something, even if it might kill them. And teenagers, even girls, aren't exactly known for risk-reward assessments. The teenage girl who succeeded quickly brought cross across Solid, which hybrid tweaks that she had used. Thousands copied her as the clique spread from a few isolated individuals on Solid to eventually normie media. The movie Reign of the Cat Girls was stated, the casting call went out and tens of thousands of teenage girls flocked to the netcams to record the casting call answer. The wealthy individual bankrolling the project to cater to his spoiled daughter made a decision that would not survive to see the end of the result. He decided that rather use computer-generated crowds and armies, he'd hire all the cat girls and have it be a novel work with minimal SFX-generated characters. The producers, directors, and writers tried to talk him out of it, but he offered to return them to Hollywood and drop them out of a shuttle where they could go fight the plants and animals driven mad by the Extinction Agenda event. They bowed to his whims. After all, the wealth businessman had computed the cost and realized that it would be cheaper to pay for all of the hybridized than to do a thousand shoots than it would do to hire a professional SFX company and create them. Word got around that rain would be almost entirely live action, only special effects where it was needed to protect the health and safety of the actors and actresses. He sent one of his luxury liners on a swan tour of the soul system, gathering up the girls. 15,000 cat girls signed contracts, boarded the liner, and had minor adjustment tweaks to the chimeric line, and were given the voice coaching and acting classes. They were taught how to use armor, which was the prototypes the wealthy businessman was trying to sell the Republic during the months that the vessel made its voyage. Video of cat girls training in armor hit solid and garnered millions of views. The business magnet had already made back the investment for the movie Rain on the ads watched by those who viewed the Inside the Rain web and entry videos. By the time the ship reached the shining blue jewel of Ganymede, the business magnet had even made back the research and development costs for the power armor and weapons. Personally, he wondered if perhaps he had been born to bankroll entertainment projects. The Republic had turned down his armor, citing that it was too bulky, too ugly, that focus groups preferred the sleek black armor of the Republic. The battlesteel lacerated plate armor based off of the old Roman armor, 
that than the heavy, ugly suits produced by the magnet. So he decided he would clad the cat girls in it, film the movie, and recoup all these costs. He had a VR programmers making video games, had toys for the film, everything he needed. The first few weeks of filming, there were a few glitches. A few of the girls suffered horrific wounds from the chainsaws. Crossing his fingers, he offered them cybernetics and new parts. They eagerly leapt at the offers. His factories built them tanks and aerospace fighters. He even had four of his interstellar passenger liners, which would total economic loss with the extinction of gender attack and what was looking to be a revolt in the colonies, retooled for the movie. The shots were breathtaking, reality feeling more raw and more desired than the fans and the crowds. The image of the lead cackle, half of her face replaced with cybernetics, giving stirring speeches from a flag bridge of a battle cruiser, had engagement rate of over 70% for a period of a month, an unheard of time. He ensured he owned the patent for the chimeric genome tweak used by the cackles of rain. It was the final phases of filming when it happened. These girls were in full armor in the tanks in their ships, cameras were forming. Plasma fire from the sky opened up the city, suburbs surrounding the domes that were no longer needed. The atmospheric membrane was punctured, the atmosphere largely vanishing in a rushing hull. Millions vomited up their lungs and died as the atmosphere dwindled to an almost nothing as the gravity generators were destroyed. The domes were destroyed by the orbital fire. The suburbs turned to flaming ash. Worse was to come over Solnet. Over Solnet! and the devastating psychic assault. Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of deaths, pushing through Solnet and Solnet, assaulting every surviving mind with screaming and death. It hit the catkills, teenage actresses playing a part that they'd spent their lives preparing for. In their defense, they weren't weak. They weren't. Not one of them was older than 20. The youngest was 12 and played the youngest one called the initiate in the script. Their minds were assaulted by the death of billions, including their friends and family, from all over the solar system as a carefully timed attack took place. Their minds shattered. The mounted forces landed on what remained of Ganymede, gleeful for the slaughter that would take place, that would break the back of Terran descent humanity. In their defense, the business magnet had been paranoid. The film had generated so much near hysteria that he had to use military-grade spoofing and security to keep the orbital spies from seeing what was going on to the point that he even concealed the power supplies of the armor and the vehicles. The mantid found themselves landing in the middle of an army. An army driven mad. An army of teenage girls armored like a battleship and armed to the teeth that had been driven mad. The mounted warriors and speakers charged. Republic armor, the thin-layered Lararca of the Republic's armor, was easily penetrated by the blade arms and weapons. The crude-looking armor, worn by the youthful-looking human-feline hybrid, surely couldn't resist them. Mounted weaponry only pocketed divots into the heavy plates of the armor. Their psychic attacks were met back with the enraged, shrieking screams of enraged teenage girls. The mandated assault quailed for a moment in the face of unbridled fury. The girls knew at that second, they knew that the mandated were responsible for it all. The mandated in front of them, 
Screaming their war cries, the actresses of the reign of the cackles charged the mantis, their minds riven and shattered, their souls consumed with bloodlust. The mantid thinkers in orbit watched in horror as the mantid warriors were literally torn limb from limb by the arm and hands of the cat girls, who could only shout a few words, their minds broken by the psychic assault. Neko, 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 was one war cry as the aerospace fighters launched. The weapons were only mock-ups, firing visual lasers only. That didn't stop a half-dozen cat girls from screaming out a second war cry. Doki, 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 they shrieked as they went full throttle. The ship's battle screen resisted the first three. The fourth got through and slammed into the center of the warship. The fifth hit the rear. The sixth plunged into the boiling mass of particles left by the fourth and exploded deep inside the ship. Go I! A thousand throats roared out as a new star boiled in the sky for a few seconds. Three hundred other aerospace fighters clawed for the cold darkness of space and the remaining battle wagons found themselves fighting for their lives. They lost. The war for Ganymede was one of the most brutal campaigns of the Mantid ever fought. The Catkills of the movie Reign of the Catkills knew nothing more than war and savagery and horror. They burned the Mantid with flames, tore them apart with their hands and ripped them apart with their chainsaws shot them to pieces with magak guns that had been props but were restored to working condition. The tunnels below Ganymede were a terror, mantid against armored Necker Marine, as the mantids had come to call them, although some of the infantry called them Doki Girls. The mantid, who had been the lords of the tunnels, were pushed back by the ferocious assaults of the armored Necker Marines. When the mantids were pushed onto the surface, they found the Necomarines waiting for them, Chainsaw, Flamer, and Magak in hand. Doki girls who knew nothing but madness and wrath, whom the Manta just couldn't seem to kill. Three times the Manta landed reinforcements as they continued the assault the Soul System, still intent on killing the Queen and breaking humanity's will to fight. Three times the screaming war cry of Doki 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 heralded the attack runs on the battle wagons by beings who weren't able to care any longer. The vehicles, the aerospace fighters had been restored to working condition. The business magnet was targeted by the black mantid death squads. It took 15 tries to get him. They did, eventually. He died in the arms of the lead actress, known only as Joan. She could not remember her name. She could not remember his. He was merely father, and he bled out in her arms as her sister fell upon the black mantid and tore them to pieces with the bare hands and sharp teeth. She painted her face with father's blood. The Necker Marines went crazy, no longer capable of speech. They burned the mantid from the surface, the tunnels, the skies of Ganymede until not a single one was left. They boarded their ships, repairing them in their madness, and drove for Mars, helping liberated. The Mantid learned to fear them. They wielded psychic lightning in one hand and weapons in the other. They did not need helmets any longer. Their armor oxygenated their blood and provided all the nutrients they needed. They were fused with their armor, but they didn't care as they helped cleanse hateful Mars of the Mantid. The screams of Neko 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 and Doki 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 
were enough to break the psychic control of some of the lesser mantids and make them flee the field. Thinkers recoiled from the psychic assault and backed from the screams, psychically transmitted madness. The death screams of thousands and thousands of people backed by the rage of the Neko Marines. When Mars was taken back, they forged more weapons, more armor, repaired and rebuilt their ships. Their ships were a reflection of their minds, shattered and twisted beauty. The bridge of the flagship, the former luxury liner that had gathered them all, had a stained glass window of Joan cradling a dying, bleeding body of father and the initiate slaughtering the mantid assassins. Their matte-trans systems were installed aboard the great ships. They often screamed, lashing out with psychic power, sometimes attacking one another. Their nanites spluttering the systems, their triple-strand DNA, their blow-out-a-line illegal gene mods from the chimeric alterations made it so that they could sustain wounds that would kill anyone else. They landed on Earth, taking part of the last years of fighting. Matrons took them quickly from battlefield to battlefield, and they fought without tiring. Their gunfire was endless, their chain swords without mercy, and their psychic lightning thick and deadly. Finally, Earth was free. They took the fires burning in the vast oceans of glass, took the shards of lost glass with them when they left. They crafted torches for their armor, infused the lost glass fires into the fires of their flames. Their ships jumped, not into jump space, no, that would be too easy. They chose Hell Space. For six months, they were missing, nowhere to be found. Then the skies of Antel rang out the war cry as Hell Space breaches blossomed inside the resonant zone, and the queens knew fear. Doki Doki Doki. From Reign of the Catkills, an oral history transcribed. End of chapter. Chapter 270 The Black Box. Harrod noticed that most of his co workers were gathered in one of the surveillance rooms, watching the cameras. Even Flower Patch had stopped whatever weird stuff she was doing and had moved over to the camera room. He shut down the projects that he was working on that were largely going nowhere and rezzed out of the hallway. He saw more than a few clones moving around as he walked to the viewing lounge and rezzed inside. The lounge existed in both real space and digital space, overlapping one another so that the digital sentiences who preferred a physical form could interact with the purely digital brethren in a social setting. Harad noticed that almost everyone was there, staring at the screens. They had expanded the view screen on one set of cameras, watching a massive transport unload crates. Legion's bringing in more computers, Torturous said. There's already enough computing power in here to run a hash crash, Harad said, sitting down and looking at the screen. Most of the stuff is state-of-the-art. There he is again, San Diego Sunrise, the Molly Sir computer expert said pointing at the bare-bones android that had moved into the frame. It was wearing a basic jumpsuit, paper slippers, and looked slightly disheveled. Weird, Flower Patch said, leaning forward. That's a bird boy. What's an android doing with a bird boy? I think he's avoiding the cameras, Vanishing Point said as the android changed course and vanished off the bottom of the edge of the screen. He's only been here a single day, Flower Patch mused, I didn't even see his name come up with the virtual directory. Who is he? Harad asked, leaning forward. There, there he is, checking the shipping label on that crate. 
Nobody's sure. He's got here yesterday with Legion and vanished. Delta said he pointed at the screen where the android had stepped back and vanished off the screen. You see, he did it again. Where did Legion find an android? Harad asked. Since the human-android war, there hasn't been an android even manufactured. He's not an android, android, came Victor's voice. Herod, to his credit, didn't scream. He's not, Flower Patch asked. With everyone else you've managed to get your hands on, I wouldn't have been surprised if you found some old android thinker. Herod walked forward. No, I wouldn't risk this facility or any of you by bringing an android into the box. There's a reason that we don't make androids anymore. The first digital biological war, Herod guessed. Ah, Victor shrugged. The human-android war and the first biological digital war were two different things. They happened at the same time, Herod protested. So did many wars in humanity's history, Victor said. He shrugged again and started slowly stroking his beard. You know, that kind of tells me something. He reached out and turned up the display before turning around. Most species, even you digital sentiences, make the same mistake. You view humanity as a homogenous whole. That if humanity goes to war with humanity, it's a human civil war. When in reality, it's two separate human governments or ethos going to war. If part of humanity goes to war with, say, Species X, then all of humanity is at war with Species X. When in reality, it's just a small section of humanity. But what about the Crusade of Wrath or the human mantid war? Delta asked. Victor shook his head. Different type of war, different types of war, he sighed. The Crusade of Wrath was Daxon and the martial orders going blood crazy on the Imperium. 90% of humanity wasn't involved. The human mantid war was a species-wide fight for survival. 90% of humanity was involved in the fight. Big difference. Flower Patch nodded. I get it. Harrod thought about it quickly. He ran comparisons on human engagement with different wars and found only in the human-manted war did human engagement rise above 30% of the entire species. Sweet shook her head. I just ran a cursory search of conflicts in humanity's history. There appear to be many smaller wars wrapped up into a big war label. It makes it easier to teach, I guess, Victor said, spreading his hands. Makes us look a lot less... Uh, Bloodthirsty, I guess. So, who is he? Torturer asked, bringing the topic back to the android. He's our newest member. He's a digital sentience, like you all, but he prefers to live in a physical therapy frame at this time, Victor said. What's his specialty? Flowerpatch asked. Computer security intrusion, Victor said. Makes sense, Sweet nodded. We're trying to crack open suds. Isn't computer hardware and software Delta's area of expertise? Vanishing Point asked. Delta held up one hand. Yes, but I'm not a security expert, much less a security intrusion expert, the DS said. What's in the boxes? Harad asked. Computers, Victor smiled. Honest to God, computers. I thought we had computers, Rapatch said. We do, but not these ones, Victor said. He turned and started walking towards the door. There'll be a meeting in two days. Harrod was walking down one of the corridors with Flower Patch when they saw a wall had a new doorway in it that hadn't been there the last time they'd walked down the hall. 
Flower Patch raised an eyebrow and pointed at the door, and Harad nodded. They took two steps into the room and stopped. Boxes lined the wall, half of them pulled open with wires hanging out. Shelves had parts stacked by category, and huge metal boxes lined one wall. An android therapy frame was kneeling behind a desk, attaching a cable to a metal box inside the desk. Hello, Flower Patch said. A poor boy looked up from the seat of the chair and then put its head back down. The android looked up. Its face was blank without any distinguishing features. The hair was rough and black. The eyes had the obvious markings of an android. Oh, hi, the android said and ducked back down. Nice to meet you, I'm Sam. Flower Patch waved her hand, trying to bring up a chair and frowning when she realized the VR room overlaying the physical room was almost completely offline. Oh yeah, hang on, the android said from behind the desk. He lifted up his hand, twisted his wrist, and two bare bones chairs appeared, obviously virtual reality. There were boot steps and Victor walked into the room, leaning against the wall and watching with narrowed eyes, his hair running through his thick beard. What is that? Blaupatch asked. Computer! The android answered. Really? Flower Patch asked, leaning forward in the chair. She looked up at it and down. Heavy metal casing, direct power linkage, direct cable linkages, she gasped. Is that a manual input device? Mechanical keyboard, the android said, and what was called a mouse. Nobody used these in, uh, in, uh, Flower Patch said. Thousands of years, the android said. There are a few almost modern things, motion contact sensors, old crude ones, bare bones emitter hologram displays, real crude stuff. He sat back and looked at everyone, then at Victor. I'm not sure how far back I'll have to go. Just do what you think will work, Victor said. Are you sure it works? The android asked. Yes, Sam, Victor said. Flower Patch nodded to herself, and she suddenly realized what the blurted together sentence had actually meant. Where did you get it? A museum? Sam asked. Victor shook his head. No. Oh, Sam said, ducking back down. The power's right. It took a minute. Thankfully, the label on the power supply was intact. I'll be back in a little bit, Sam, Victor said. It was quiet, just Sam running cables from several different computers and back. How old are these? Flower Patch asked once her curiosity index got too high. Pre-glassing, Sam said. He slapped the side of a big black device with several different logos on it. This is just the interface to interact with the early quantum computer that has nearly 500 qubits and three logical qubits. Herod snorted. Victor's watch has some more than that. But they didn't, Sam said, opening the panel and looking at the data. Okay, Temperature on the server room is almost on target, almost at a vacuum, he said, as he looked at her rod. This thing's really sensitive to noise. Why do you even need it? I can have this creation engine run off a hand data state with more processing power, her rod said, frowning. It seemed like a waste of time and resources. Sam sat down and sighed. Let me explain it to you how I explained it to Legion. Go ahead, Flower Patch said, her nanite body clearly defined. She laced her fingers together and set her chin on them. All right, to hack the system, I have to be able to talk to it, Sam said, which is why Delta is trying to figure out what hardware is needed, Harad said. Won't help him or me, Sam said. Flower Patch frowned. Why not? 
How much do you know about computers? Sam asked. I can use one, Plowpatch admitted. I mean, I am, basically, a hyper-advanced software sentient computer program. Rod snorted. I know a lot about them. Then you know that an operating system has several layers. The layer we need to be most concerned is the hardware abstraction layer, Sam said. He checked the temperature and the atmospheric sensors again. Okay, the logical qubits are stable. That's good. Phew, this is primitive stuff. Hardware abstraction layer, Harad said. It's the bottom of the operating system, down where most users never see it. It takes the input from the user interaction layer and translates it into instructions for the hardware, Sam said, glossing over the most of the information. It's the backbone of an iOS, and what we're going to need to figure out how to access the site's network. It also allows different manufacturers or types of hardware to be used with an operating system. Without it, the user can't talk to the hardware, which means I might have to build or hack a virtual one to get the Sudzi to talk to me. Can't we just access the operating system? Harad asked. Maybe. It might not help, Sam said. He moved over and sat down in front of the desk. I wish it could have been original hardware, but 8,000 or more years probably makes it impossible. He put his fingers on the keys and tapped them for a moment. His eyes glossed. A QWERTY keyboard, obsolete for thousands of years, actually designed to be slower to type from the research I did on my way here. Why use it then? Harad asked. Because I need to use what works with this, not hack up a patch to get modern stuff to communicate with it. Sam sighed and rolled his neck. A biological habit that looked odd on an android. The OS is bad enough. It's not a clean ones we have now. They were a lot more involved, a lot more kludgy, to use their term. How so? Flowerpatch asked. They used what was called a seven-layer OSI networking model. It consisted of hardware layers, physical, data link, network, transport, and software layers. Session, presentation, application, user. It was designed to work with hardware and software that literally evolved on a day-to-day -day basis. Nowadays, software patches happen once every few months. Back then, a typical regular user could expect at least one piece of software to have a minor or major update every day. He smiled. A wan thing. I petted his poor boy. It must have been an amazing time. Flower Patch watched with interest as the therapy frame wearing the Sam pressed a physical button on the top of the computer, and it beeped and began to whir. The screen, a simple 2D curved micro-LED screen, flashed several times, then showed a logo for a long moment before showing a login. That's odd, Sam said. He cocked his head and looked at it. If this is all new stuff, the system should be blank. Are you sure this is newly fabbed stuff? Flowerpatch asked mildly. Of course it is. This old stuff uses magnetic media storage. Even the solid-state drive should be dead within years of being unpowered, Sam said. You'd get magnetic drift and corruption over time. With the solid-state stuff, it used trapped electrons in a part of the transistor that's electrically insulated. That got there through quantum tunneling hardware. Back then, really cutting-edge stuff that was actually put into civilian use before widespread military use. Nobody has used magnetic media in, um, a rod said, and then trailed off. Yeah, 8,000 years, Sam said his voice missing any rebuke as he hit the password hint. This isn't even monocirc, it's actually old complementary metal oxide silicon solid state semiconductors. 
next to my pen, appeared on the screen as Blau patched hum, thinking about the materials engineering requirements for such a thing. Nah, no way, Sam said. He pulled open a desk drawer and sneezed at the dust. He looked inside. Really? No way! He typed in the computer beep, showing a simple 2D workspace. We'll leave you to it, Flower Patch said, standing up. Harrod went to protest, but Flower Patch grabbed his hand in a virtual space and pulled him out of the room. Why is Victor having someone mess around with obsolete technology? Harrod asked. Flower Patch giggled, because it wasn't obsolete when the Suds Network, the Solnet, and Solnet were created. Harrod frowned and then groaned when he realized it. He's doing the same thing with computers that we're having to do with our specialties. Exactly, Flowerpatch said. She giggled again. Legion hired a hacker. It makes perfect sense. We don't have any authorized logins or passwords. He needs someone who can crack the system and get in. Computers are twice as fast as they were back then, Harrod joked. Flowerpatch giggled. And the average voter is as just as drunk and as stupid as ever. I'll never understand these fleshies, Flowerpatch giggled. Imagine cloning and mental engramming the clone to be an ancient ruler, putting his head on a giant robot combat chassis and electing him to rule the Confederacy. All because it was funny. Fleshies are weird, Harrod agreed. It's almost grating to an 80% of advancements come from a clump of barely functioning biomatter instead of us digital sentiences. Flowerpatch shrugged and giggled again. I can tell you why, but you won't believe me. The rod stopped at his door. Tell me. Flowerpatch faced him then, weirdly enough. Blew a spit bubble, stuck out her tongue so that the bubble was in the tip and started at it cross-eyed for a moment. Her rod could hear her nanites humming for a long moment before the bubble popped. He was about to ask what was going on when she spoke. We interact with the physical world when it suits us or when we have to she said. She blew another spit bubble and waited till it popped. They live in it. What does, Rod started to say. Flower Pash puffed into black purple and dark green dust that whisked away down the hallway. Chromium Jesus, she's weird, he said, putting his hand on the panel and rising into his lab. He stared at his board, which had molecule interactions and noble elements in a highly energized plasma field written on it. He thought about it for a long time, staring at the boards. Finally, he pinged Delta and Torturer. The two arrived simultaneously. What's up? Delta asked, looking at the board. Whoa! That's some equations. What do you need? Torturer asked roughly. I need you to fab me up a nanite body, Harrod said, like Flower Patch has. Easy enough, Delta shrugged. You could have just requested a creation engine to fab you up the nanites for that. That's not all, Harrod said. He pointed at the equations on the board. That's gonna sound crazy, but I need a custom reality interface. Delta smiled at that. With pain and other tactile sensations, Harrod finished. Torturer smiled. Easy enough. Not so fast, Harrod said. He pointed at the board again. I need to be able to be one of those particles, or a plasma stream, or a magnetic stress. Delta nodded. That's an interesting request. Why? So I can understand these particles better. You know what it is to be them, Harrod said. Could be dangerous. It could be painful, Delta warned. Harrod summed up the stock picture of the precasting scientist in his white coat, a pipe 
glasses, and his lantern jaw, would he have hesitated? End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.